this just in. Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm Darren. I'm Andrew. And I'm Anya. And this week we're talking about a new entry on the list. Alfonso Cuaron's 2018 Netflix released Roma. Which is an interesting film for a number of reasons. Most obviously it is the first Netflix film to place on the top 250 movies of all time as voted for by IMDb users. Which is kind of interesting. I saw the movie as intended. On Netflix. Mm-hmm. On my phone. In a series of Instagram <laughs> stories. Yeah. yeah. Um, adjusted screen ratio wise for <laughs> the phone screen. Because you know that's a thing now. They're now adjusting classic movies and classic television shows. So you can watch them on your phone holding it like vertically. Which is remarkable. Because like, again, like you should just turn it sideways and watch it widescreen. But apparently that's not how kids watch television now. So they've remastered like the X-Files. Yeah. They remastered the X-Files and other television shows so they can be watched in that way, which is fascinating. It's bonkers, just because people won't turn their phones sideways. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> something. there's an entire department working at Fox that, you know, it's like, well, we could get kids to turn their phones sideways, but that's never going to happen. Um, but yeah, it's... How can we get kids to watch sideways? <laughs> watch sideways vertically. But yeah, it's so... Uh, but this is a brave new world that we're living in. And it is interesting that you mentioned that you watched it as Netflix intended, which was playing in the background while you were doing something else on your phone. Um, but no, the... Because kind of this is one in of the... the gym. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, drifting in and out. I felt like I caught most of what was going on. But this is kind of interesting because Netflix obviously represents a massive paradigm shift. And we talked a little bit about this on the podcast before because we covered their first movie to make the bottom 100 oh, which things was the are always hand. changing though yeah yeah like like it's 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 it it's not like thing, thing things just kind of um the the way we watch movies stays stays the same like there used to be more um cinemas and smaller cinemas now there's kind of like these big cinemas and all of these different ways of watching it yeah, but like home, home media like kind of the 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 expansion of the amount of um, even like television channels there is the irrelevance of television <laughs> as a um, yeah and yeah all, 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 all these kind of things are changing all the time it is and it's like Netflix are very much in the sort of center <clears throat> of that because like we talked on the I think a couple of years ago because this won't be the first streaming service sponsored uh, streaming service created film to win or to be sorry to be nominated for the best picture Oscar that would have been Manchester by the Sea which was produced by Amazon Studios but the difference between what Amazon Studios did and what Netflix did is Amazon played a much more traditional game in terms of how they released it Manchester by the Sea was out in cinemas in a traditional release window before it was released on Amazon Prime for streaming you know for for people who subscribe what happened with Roma and, and what happened with Netflix in general is there's been a push and pull with the movie industry in terms of how they distribute. I remember discussing this with you about Manchester by the Sea in a, in, in a part of the podcast that definitely wasn't added in post. <laughs> yes. I um, sat and listened to you. Yeah. 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 But, um, but it, it is like, I mean, and you've had like this thing with Netflix where like Cannes very famously insisted that Netflix adhere to the traditional rules of French cinema, which is a 36-month window between a screening in a cinema and a release in home media. And Amazon have played that game and they said, fine, that's what it takes for us to be taken seriously as a studio. Netflix were like, no, our entire purpose is that you can watch this on home media almost as soon as we show it in cinemas. So they Mm -hmm. took their ball and went home. I think they went to Venice instead. What's interesting about Roma is that like Netflix... 
really, really, really seem to want this to do well. And so they, it's a more compromised position than some of the other Netflix films. And See, they couldn't get a cinema release in Mexico either. Uh, really? Yeah, that okay. was that was what was strange. And that they needed, the, the, I think it was the two main chains, cinema chains in Mexico. They refused. They said they didn't see it having a... Ironically, they didn't see it having a future a as, as a film being released. Yeah, so they didn't think it was worth their while, so they didn't bother. Interesting. And that was where the distribution thing kind of fell. I don't know that it was inevitable. It was initially intended for that. Okay. And how is it done? Oh, it's what, it's, it, what you mean? Has it done in cinemas? Yeah, or in Mexico or in Mexico? Oh yeah, I mean it's been huge, but I don't know that it it isn't at least in part of this. I don't know. I'm just guessing. It's in part because of the huge uh, international acclaim for the film. Mm. Obviously, it's of great interest. And I mean, I think a Mexican audience will view it very differently to what we see. You know, I mean, so much of it's familiar. I suppose it's like us looking at, I don't know, The Field or Michael Collins or something. You know, you you view it with a ton of history and prejudice or whatever. And they'll be the same, whereas we're looking at, at, at... Roma quite differently than they are well that's it because I mean and we'll talk about this in the spoiler zone probably but I remember I saw it first in a cinema screening held by Netflix which I believe was the first cinema screening that Netflix held in Ireland Um, and it was also they gave it a unique they gave it a one week exclusive theatrical window as well which was seen as a gesture towards like people who were worried about Netflix coming for cinema Uh, but it's also worth noting that um, when I saw it gets it reviewed it does indeed. I guess it's sort of discussed in a way that like Netflix is just dump it all on Friday morning approach yes. doesn't always work. Um, but it, it kind of, it also, I saw it and I, I really liked it the first time I saw it. And obviously for this podcast, I did a whole bunch of research. I found it interesting. You were, you were, you were talking just before recording about like how they showed it in the evening, which, 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 which the critics weren't mad about. It's like the alternative is anytime you want. <laughs> and you're not happy with that. Um, so, like, no, we want it specifically in the morning. It's like, you could watch it in the morning. <laughs> or in the afternoon, in the evening. You don't even have to do it on the hour. You can do it on a minute, halfway through a minute. Just click play. This is, this is the interesting thing, because there is this argument over how Netflix is affecting or changing cinema. And this is interesting because, as I alluded to, uh, you will know the Best Picture nominees by the time you hear this podcast. We don't know them yet. Uh, unfortunately, we're not inside that circle yet. But it seems highly likely that Roma will be a Best Picture nominee. Darren's um, being coy. Um, well, I mean, you know, we, we are we are voters. Myself and Andrew were inducted into the Academy last year uh, as part of their push towards diversity in terms of talent as much yeah, as anything else. More white, straight, cis males. Yeah. Um, and, and less talented people as well, generally yeah. speaking. We're there to keep represent that. But the... Um, there's a very high likelihood that this will be Netflix's first Best Picture nominee. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about that is that it's opened up this debate about the future of cinema where a lot of people in Hollywood seem to be very passionate about this. Angelina Jolie hell is holding like luncheons for this, where she goes and sings the praises of the film. You have Alfonso Cuaron doing Q&As with Academy members. You have like famously, because Netflix want this so bad, the film cost $15 million to make. So far, they haven't released any figures on the Oscar campaign, but veteran campaigners suggest that the Oscar campaign for Roma costs at least $25 million. (laughs) Um, 
members of the Academy are receiving requests asking them if they would like their signed poster for the movie framed or rolled. Um, they're receiving a $175 coffee table book. Um, they hired, the campaign is being masterminded by uh, Lisa Tobek, who was one of uh, Harvey Weinstein's uh, sort of right-hand women at Miramax and was responsible for shaping the Oscar race as we understand it today. Like there are stories that people inside Netflix working on other projects tell where they're insanely jealous, where it's like somebody raises their hand in a meeting and says, I have an idea for the campaign for Roma. It'll only cost $600,000. <laughs> and the studio executives say, bill us. Um, like, because Netflix really, really, really want the prestige of that gold statuette. And there's some argument about whether they... Venmo the money. <laughs> Don't tell me what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just send a request to my phone here. It's and... in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the Oscar campaign, baby. Yeah. Um, but it is, like, uh, I have this image of, like, I want a giant inflatable Roman Colosseum. I don't know what it has to do with the movie, but I just had this vision. Yeah. Um, but it does speak to... One of the interesting pushbacks that they've been receiving is this argument about whether or not the anxiety over whether or not this is really a movie, because there's a lot of anxiety in Hollywood about Netflix and how Netflix are changing cinema distribution, because this is remarkable, this film. This is a black and white film in Mexican and, sorry, in Spanish, and is it Mextec is the language? Mextec, yeah. Um, and it's distributed through Netflix, so it arguably has a bigger reach than any other potential Best Picture nominee. It has a bigger reach, potentially, than A Star Is Born, than Green Book, than, you know, um, The Favourite, than any other film. And it's kind of, it's interesting that you're getting, that it's at the same time as being that, it's so esoteric. It's such a uniquely personal and strange film. If nominated for the Best Picture Oscar, it would be the first foreign language film to be nominated, which is remarkable, even aside from the whole Netflix thing. This is, like... It's astonishing to think of this as a film that anybody can watch at any time, whenever they want. Yeah, it's true. Um, but yeah, so how, how do we sort of feel about that? Because myself and Anya, we saw it on the big screen. Um, and and I, we, I certainly watched it at home since, I believe you watched it at home since I did, as well. yeah, yeah. Um, and Andrew, you watched it at home. So, Anya, how did you find the experience of watching it in the cinema versus watching it at home? Because a big debate about Roma is whether you should see it in the cinema or whether you should see it at home or... Did it make a difference to you? Uh, I mean, it's a very beautiful film. It really is a very beautiful film. And there are lots of details in every shot. I mean, the production design is incredible. And uh, I think, you know, just having a huge screen means that you can sort of move your head around to see everything and yeah. you do see the details. But uh, no, I mean, it's, it's, look, I, I think I preferred it on the, cin on the cinema screen, but it was also the first time that I saw it. So it's hard to tell. You know, I didn't know yeah. what was going to happen. This time I was just watching it to brush up, but it's absolutely worth watching. Yeah, no matter what, which is, again, remarkable. Because, I mean, however sceptical people might be about Netflix, like, destroying cinema or the art form or Some changing the way people TVs watch. are gigantic anyway. That's it, exactly. <laughs> it's not like... It's not really that people yeah, are watching the screen, it on their phones. Screens at the cinema are getting uh, smaller. I've been, I've been to a... a, a a, a recent screening at a um, at a Dublin cinema, which used to have the Savoy, um, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So oh. the Savoy used to have this huge uh, screen one, and I think I, I must have been up in like screen thirteen, or yeah. something like that. But it it was it it it, it was like very 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 small. Where and and like I was wondering, kind of like 
what scale is that compared to Darren's television? <laughs> if I sit closer to yeah, it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like the, so, like, the model of modern cinema going is pushing more towards multiplexes. So, like, Savoy 1 was famously cut up and turned into six smaller cinemas. I don't know. I just can't process it. The grief is too much for me. It is indeed. It's, t- like, it's amazing because I remember... I saw Star Wars and everything in there. I mm. queued around the corner to go and see that. Well, I mean, I, I, I have fond memories of going to see stuff in Savoy the, 1 as well, because when you're in there with the crowd, it's incredible. Like and the, the, the Gaiety Sligo was a similar kind of um, uh, story, because there, there, there was a huge big um, uh, screen. Uh, screen in there where I would have watched kind of things like um, uh, uh, Little Mermaid and, uh, yeah. And I mean, even that, this isn't just a soon Irish thing as well. Like, I yeah. mean, over in New York, is it the Zellig Theatre in Manhattan, which is where they used to host all the big like premieres of stuff because yeah. all the stars lived in Manhattan and so you hosted it there. Um, but that shut down and has been sort of gutted and renovated and it's like a 2,000-seater cinema. I remember going to see Quantum... No, not Quantum of Solace. What's the one? Spectre there. It was me and two other people and I literally had the entire upper balcony to myself watching this film and it was an amazing experience but it was like I can see how this is not a viable business model for the operator of this cinema. Yeah, yeah um, give the likes of the Stella coming around as yeah. well, you know, where it's a it's a proper date night, you know, with, with you snacks get food at your chair, cocktails and all yeah. that, you know, nice big comfy seats and footstools and all of that. So it's a reimagining. I mean, it, it's just it just keeps changing. That's Adapt it. Adapt or die. That's yeah. it. I'm, I'm surprised there there hasn't really um, come along a a a low cost kind of. Um, model of this is it is it, it generally kind of unless unless you go to a kid screening <laughs> as we recently <laughs> did it's generally quite like, like it wasn't uh, creepy listeners <laughs> somehow me insisting uh, it wasn't creepy makes it creepy yeah, <laughs> no, like, i didn't think it was you were like disguised now. as a chair <laughs> Oh God! Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) But anyway, you were saying (laughs) outside of those experiences. Uh, Yeah, it's generally like kind of like a can can be um, an expensive enough proposition, considering the um, uh, what you're putting down when you're kind of watching it at home. Yeah, I mean, like I have a friend who talks like his test for going to the cinema is is it worth the price of a babysitter? And it's a legitimate choice. Exactly. Yeah. If you're going at not even the price of the tickets, which are increasing, you're also paying for the confectionery, which is marked up because obviously that's where the cinemas make their money. You're doing parking, possibly dinner beforehand, but babysitter if you have the kids at home. Like it's remarkable. It's like people who really enjoy cinema, and I would count myself among them. We tend to underestimate the amount of cost in terms of time opportunity and money that for that going to the cinema entails i spend four nights a week in the cinema i can't imagine doing otherwise so it's natural for me to assume that the cinema is just accessible to everybody and i think there's something to be said for and this is kind of interesting when you talk about netflix movies with people because like netflix have had a great slate this year they've had a whole bunch of stuff that is generally quite good i really like to hold the dark for example um even outlaw king was not not perfect but it was kind of interesting and it was kind of interesting to watch in that way i really like cam but in the past netflix movies have been a bit rocky let's be honest here so like i'm thinking of mute by duncan jones for example oh, oak joe was good oak joe was good as well yeah but i'm thinking but about what about the sandra bullock one? Oh, uh bird box yes as well which i mean would... that's just hasn't that topped everything that's become a massive phenomenon, which is kind of interesting in the terms of Roma. So according to Netflix, 40 million people have watched, watched Bird Box in its first week of release. And obviously, like, people are skeptical of Netflix because 
there's no way to validate that externally. I don't doubt it though, because I've had people texting me, friends and relatives. Saying, Everyone seems yeah. to have seen Bird Box. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It's Every, become, everyone, it's my become kids, very my culturally parents, relevant. Me, everyone's yeah. seen Bird Box. Yeah, I, I have people like people who know that I like films are like, have you seen Bird Box? Which is great, by the way. One of the great things about Netflix is that because it recommends to you, you assume you've discovered it. Yeah. Um, like you feel yeah. like an, an, an accomplishment when you're like, you watch something on Netflix that nobody's told you about. So I get text messages saying, have you seen Bird Box? It's amazing. You should watch Bird Box. Um, and I quite like Bird Box. But, but. I, I, I find some of the kind of, when, when, when people say, oh, um, Netflix has produced a lot of great stuff, but they've also do, produced some real crap. It's like, why is that a problem? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, Just they, don't watch the crap. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. This, this, it's, it's it, like, if, I think people are thinking of it as some sort of like, Criterion collection that's just been curated <laughs> for them and it's why is stuff I don't like on this Adam Sandler movies yeah. um, the Cloverfield paradox but yeah. this is the interesting thing though even with those movies even with those movies that are not good one of the interesting conversations that I've had with people in my office and in my family is that they are a lot more forgiving of a Netflix film because it involves a lot less cost than going to the cinema. Absolutely, you can yeah. dip in and out. Yeah. I mean, you just switch it on. If you don't like it, you turn it off. Yeah. Whereas if you've paid to go to the cinema and bought your popcorn yeah. and paid for your babysitter, <laughs> yeah. you're like, this is crap. Why am I sitting here? You're See, raging at the exactly. way. Whereas this is, you can just switch it off and watch something else. Watch that woman with the cleaning instead. Yeah. Oh, Maria Kondo. Is yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, I love that we can have this conversation. If the film like, doesn't spark doesn't joy. Spark joy. <laughs> <laughs> Throw it away. Just throw it away. Didn't cost you. Netflix should only have thirty films at a time. Really, is what we're getting at here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, like it's it's remarkable and it's kind of interesting. Like we talk about Bird Box because Bird Box is a cultural phenomenon. It's kind of interesting that Roma doesn't seem to have had the same impact. Netflix, for example, they're getting very very boastful about how certain things are performing on there. They they've like announced Bird Box was also Christmas week. Yeah. Well, and a Sandra uh, Bullock film, yeah, um, like yeah. that's. Well, it's a, it, it, like Bird, Bird, and it's not subtitled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like the, the, this is a very kind of um, sort of uh, uh, grown-up kind of um, uh, art housey movie in yeah. a way that I imagine Bird Box isn't. It's more kind of like genre. There is yeah, uh, a quiet place, but yeah, with yeah. eyes. And the, <laughs> of course, like Sandra Bullock in it, who's very yeah. bankable. This is a movie with no recognized stars. Um, yeah. stars. Um, at all in black and white um, in, in Spanish language. and Mexican yeah. yeah so uh, like the the um, I think I don't know if 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 um, if anyone would really be expecting this to be a a huge commercial yeah. um, success but they're certainly going after it as a, a a critical and like awards kind of wordy yeah um, it is worth noting by the way that like and again I, I kind of I love Netflix power moves where we talk about like the $25 million, like, oh, just, just Vimo me the details for your, or Venmo me the details for your, uh, your publicity campaign where they release the film in cinemas, right? And they refuse to tell anybody how it did at the box office. And by the way, this isn't, this is a power move because like all the reports are that it's sold out. Industry experts who are looking at screenings are saying that like it's had the highest per screening ratio of like of, of income of any film released in its two weekends to beat the favorite apparently would be people's estimates and the favorite was a record breaker yeah. of itself but netflix are quite literally just like they don't care they told comscore we're just not telling you how much money this movie made in release because it doesn't interest us at all which is kind of it's kind of interesting. I kind of admire the kind of the refusal. Well, I don't to know play. that it doesn't interest. I mean, it's a tactic as yeah. well. You know, I mean, it, it, 
to release it in cinemas does change the game. Yeah, and and to ref- and to a, to release in cinemas and tacitly admit that you don't care about how much it makes there because you're like we're it's not really just part of the Oscar campaign. Yeah. I would have thought. Yeah, um, and it, it's but I, I kind of admire that it's like other studios like the favorite or, or other sort of advice or any other potential contender play by those rules. And I like that Netflix is just like. No, not for us. Yeah. Um, not how we're doing we it. We don't year. need to. Yeah. Well, I suppose they're part of that whole like fangs bubble yeah, yeah. where they just have more money than sense yeah. at this point. Yeah. Like I, I was watching some of the um, Norm Macdonald um, kind of, um, he was uh, he was given um, a show on it. And I think he mentions lots of times, it's like, can you believe this? <laughs> look, at, look at all this kind of uh, they gave stuff me a they fridge. gave us. Yeah. yeah, they gave us a fridge. Um, yeah, you can take whatever you want from there. Yeah. Um, but um, anyway, I think we've talked enough about Netflix. Let's talk about the film itself, actually. Because the film itself, this is Alfonso Cuaron's latest effort, and it's arguably his most personal work. Um, this is a director who pre- whose previous work includes, obviously he, he did work in Mexico, uh, but he, he's best known to modern audiences or to audiences, say, my age and maybe a little bit younger for his work on, say, the Harry Potter franchise where he directed The Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, Children of Men, um, and also even Gravity was his last release as well, which were all big, bankable, broad, accessible blockbusters. And in terms of Gravity in particular, it was one of those films where people were like, you have to see it on a big screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's kind of interesting to see him do something that is so small and so personal and so kind of intimate almost and local really yeah you know i mean it's very local i mean just because it's had that broader interest it it, there was no guarantee of that at all yeah and i I, it seems um, it's local to a neighborhood that that's it and i mean well we'll talk about this in the sports zone but like the level of detail that goes into it to make it personal like rebuilding the house from scratch Filming in the same locations that he remembers. Yeah, using the same street. Shutting down the center of Mexico for two days uh, because he remembered being in that place when a thing happened. Stuffed dogs' heads. All that sort of detail. Incredible. Because he just remembered them from something. Yeah. uh, Like, it's very much a very personal... Like, Odyssey. It's it's, it's in the same way. It kind of reminds me of, like, Lady Bird for for Greta Gerwig or mid-90s for Jonah Hill, where it's like you can tell that the person's like, well, I lived through this and this is what I'm putting on screen, except with Karan. It's like I'm putting it on screen, and also it's going to be staggeringly beautiful as a technical accomplishment. The level of detail is going to be amazing. It's going to be technically comparable to something like Lawrence of Arabia, except it's the memories of my childhood, uh, which I kind of I admire that level of absolutely. Mine would be walking to Cornell's Court and stuff as a kid, <laughs> shaky handheld camera with people in wigs. Um, whereas, like the level of attention to detail in this is staggering. And again, like not to go down the Netflix path, but like one of the great things about Netflix is that they will give these directors the money to do this. Yeah. Like at somebody pointed, I think Owen, Gle- Owen Gleiberman. Fifteen for, million though wasn't that much. It wasn't actually, particularly like particularly considering the modern budget of a of a low. Like it's competing against films like A Star Is Born has a sixty million dollar budget to give mm. you an example, and that isn't even like a blockbuster. Um, and that like I would argue A Star Is Born has a much smaller scale in some respects. Than this does. Maybe the concert at Glastonbury, for example, oh, yeah. would be the only thing that would compete in terms of scale with some of the stuff that Quran's doing here. But like Netflix gave him that, and I think the issue was time as well. It How took much? him two years, uh, fifteen million, and complete artistic. Five pre- oh, what fifteen? Fifteen. Yeah. Oh, so like considerably less than yeah. yeah. Star is born a quarter, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Um, but it was time as well and complete creative control. It took him two years, I think, 
to make it. He talked about how he was trying to cast the lead role of Cleo for the bones of a year. And like, this is the thing with Netflix and creatives where apparently they're vacuuming up, like Martin Scorsese's getting a $120 million budget to make The Irishman, which no other studio would finance because there'd be no way that that will make that back at the box office. Not even Megan Ellison would <laughs> pay for that. A24. Like, um, a, 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 a daughter of the tent riches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, 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 I was reading um, about that stuff because, of course, um, uh, David Ellison's company have given a job to John Lasseter. Yes. Yeah. Um, I was thinking, well, they just have... They just have um, millions and hundreds of millions of of, of, of dollars with, with which to spend. So they don't have to worry about the kind of things that the studios do. Yeah. Well, I mean, like the, the famous, I remember a couple of years ago before Netflix blew up, that there were all these agonized think pieces from people in Hollywood that were like, Megan Ellison is really screwing things up for the rest of us. Like, she can go and write a check for a $60 million indie that she knows isn't going to make any money. And that means that we at Fox, who have to report to our, our bottom line to our investors, we can't do that. And that kind of really screws us. It distorts the market. And I, kind of, I imagine that person bashing their head against the keyboard as Netflix is like, yeah, Martin Scorsese, $120 million. Yeah, Alfonso Cuarón, you've got three years to make your Mexican passion piece. Uh, and just that sort of, like, wonderful, like, esoteric... There's no way this could actually exist without Netflix sort of quality to it, which I, I admire. I adore, mm. actually. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, they've shaken up what's being made. Yeah. Like, I mean, this, I mean cinema either. stuff was getting, yeah. the studio stuff had become very safe. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Like, I mean, because you have stuff like Martin Scorsese can't get a budget from Paramount to make his gangster film. Like, that's. You know, that's an insane proposition to anybody who lived through the 90s. But I mean, even stuff like they're doing... It's reuniting all the, you know, yes, people from... De Niro, Pacino, uh, is it not Keitel, but uh, Pesci's in there as well, I think. Isn't he, he is, yeah. Yeah. He's coming out of retirement for it. Yeah, and you're like, any studio in the 90s would have killed for a movie like this, but now none of them will touch it because of the way the market's moved, where everything yeah. has to be a blockbuster. But also, like, it's... it's uh, like uh, De Niro in the nineties is, <laughs> is perhaps different, the, uh, different kind of yeah proposition. Okay, yeah. De Niro and yeah, like and, and when you're saying all this, it's like you're going to get Joe Pesci and, <laughs> and, and Robert De Niro, and they're all coming back for this. I'm like, this could also not be very good. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I, know. Then, <laughs> I, I think like, it's the addition of them to Scorsese that we're excited yeah. about, and maybe not. <laughs> well, I mean, but even if it's not very good, though, it seems worth taking a punt on. Is yeah, it does. And right. I mean, like, Netflix have done well, this. Give them another shot. Come <laughs> <laughs> on. I mean, like, silence wasn't that bad, was it? Um, but, it, like, and it's even stuff, like, outside of Prestige Pictures. Like, Netflix this year had, uh, was it the the Summer of Love, as they called it, where they released all these rom-coms, like, To All the Boys I've Loved and uh, The Setup or whatever. Yeah. Which, you can't, which there's no room in cinemas for anymore. Yeah. And, like, they'd never find an audience, but well, they crazy went... Rich Asians was in, in, in the yeah. cinemas this year. That would have been kind of in the same... Sort of uh, Ballywick sort of wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, again, that was a sort of thing where, like... But that's from one that example. and others, there is no room. Well, there's no, no. But, I mean, <laughs> but, I mean, that that's one example. Like, it's in a in a year that's been absolutely packed. Yeah, I feel like Netflix... Dumplin' as well. Yeah, Dumplin' with uh, Jennifer Aniston as well. Yeah, Netflix is playing a role of releasing movies that other <laughs> studios may or may not release, and sometimes do. Um, <laughs> All right, thank you, Mister. Sorry. But anyway, no, let, let's. No, no, I take your point. It it it, it does. It but does, does it make them safer in a way? Then can they say, "Ah, oh, sure, 
Netflix will fund it. We'll yeah. just go with this. Yeah, I mean, like, cause now, now Paramount have no obligation. They can say yeah. no to, to Scorsese and know that he'll be picked yeah. up wherever. Yeah, yeah. and they, they, like, they um, fund all sorts of um, uh, projects because they can. Yeah. Whether they're... whether, whether They're financially they're or viable or whatever. Uh, or, yeah. Like my own project. Uh, they've, 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 they've given you got the green light, a hard right? yes to soft pass. Um, um, yeah, we, myself and Andrew have been pitching Netflix for a while. We're surprised at how long it took us to get the yes on it, to be honest, given yeah. you know, given the coffers that they have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's talk about Roma. Before we talk about it in a bit more depth, the three questions, right? So the three questions are, do you think this movie belongs on the list of the top 250 movies ever made, Anya? Uh, yes, I do. Cool. And Andrew? I would agree. Um, I, I, would, I, would, I would put it up there. And, and I... I I didn't know, um, didn't know what to expect of this movie, and even kind of like um, uh, starting to watch it. It starts beautifully, but it starts very slowly. Yeah, pacing in this movie is fantastic. Um, so it's it it really kind of um takes you there with it, and you don't, I suppose, uh, maybe I didn't certainly grasp kind of how good this movie was until. It, it, it reached a sort of yeah, point yeah. in the narrative, not to get too spoilery. No, but it, like, like um, it, w- it was kind of the, the kind of. Uh, I suppose we'll 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 talk a little bit about it the other side. But no, I I thought it was a fantastically accomplished movie. What about yourself, Darren? I and, and I do think it deserves to be in the three. I'd I'd agree with it being on the list. I think it's it's culturally important in terms of being the movie that it is. It's a black and white Spanish and Mextec movie. That is going to be a Best Picture nominee. That has a reasonable chance of being the first foreign language Best Picture winner. By the way, for the people who are already typing the angry tweets, asterisk, the the artist technically counts, but it's also in English with a predominantly American cast, supporting cast, and set in Hollywood. So I'm not sure we can quite count that one. (laughs) Um, But it, it is in terms of, also in terms of like solidifying Netflix as a cultural shaper, and also demonstrating the potential of that. In that this is a much smaller more intimate, weirder movie than normally makes this list that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is very much an outlier in terms of new entries. The new entries this year include films like Green Book. They include films like uh, Into the Spider-Verse. They include, you know, a Hindu film reflecting the renewed interest in India in terms of, like, pushing their films forward. But this is a smaller, more intimate, like, very personal auteur-driven project the kind of which we very rarely see on the list. We didn't see, for example, Lady Bird last year. We didn't see Phantom Midnight Thread. Phantom Thread. Like, and so like the fact that it is making this list, I think, says something about the power of Netflix. Well, in terms of distribution, yeah, yeah. and making it accessible. Yeah, because like as 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 good as as Phantom Thread was, it was a thing that people had to um, seek out. Yeah, they had they had to kind of make the time. To go, um, to go watch it in the cinema, or um, and and not not every cinema even like, like yeah. the the lighthouse for example the IFI like it yeah. wasn't like I don't think you'd go to Cineworld and see Phantom Thread or then wait yeah for it to to, to be on home media yeah yeah um, but yeah and then the second question is would it be on your own personal two fifty year if you were to curate a list of your favorite movies of all time would it place there on you um, I think that's a really difficult question but I think it would yeah yeah. Would it have been one of your favourites of last year, actually? Just to, to make it a sort of a smaller and more intimate sort of question. Oh, yes, without question. All right. Yeah, definitely. It was on my top ten. Ooh, where? 
Um, Sorry, I know that's very... I find the placing, like, I mean, I find that placing really, really difficult because you like things for different reasons, you know, and I find it really hard to say, oh, that was better than this. I mean, they each stab you in a different part of your heart. I don't know. Oh, no. I mean, for... I I thought that as an achievement, it was incredible. And I thought that... um, you know, visually, and I thought the performance-wise, and then the more you know about how something is made, that also influences what you think as well. And I don't know how relevant that is sometimes. Yeah, it's it's it can we talked about this in the podcast before, where sometimes it's hard to separate the movie from the context in which it exists. I mean, we have spent almost half an hour talking about Netflix on this podcast um, sure. to give you an idea of the context that exists. And, and I, I just like South American stuff, yeah. and you know, I mean that that for me that's. Oh, it's interest. It's an interest. It's an instant yeah. interest. Sort of gives it a, a leg up almost immediately. Yeah, I mean, if I saw it and I didn't know anything about it, I'd watch it just because I like that kind of thing. Yeah. So it was already ahead of the posse for other things. <laughs> uh, which is always good when you have like a film, like as a film critic, when you see a movie that you would see if you weren't a film critic, it gives it a bit of an advantage going in. What about yourself, Andrew? Would it be among your own top 250 movies ever made? Because I know you create a list very would, carefully. Would it be in my own list? Well... Alfonso Cuaron's movie had a lot of heart, but a man getting hit by a football in the groin had a man man getting hit by a football. Sorry. Um, um, So what you're saying is it can't quite compete with a Medea Christmas, is what we're getting at here. No. Or Dodgeball, a true underdog story. The best movie about men getting hit with footballs in the groin. That's true. Yeah, 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 I, I, I think I would. I think I, like... There, there is, there is a sense in which kind of, I'm sure, like, for, for, we're we're going to say in a moment whether we'd 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 kind of recommend it, but I would imagine there would be a sense among some listeners, it's like this is exactly the kind of music, is it? Sorry, this is exactly the kind of movie that kind of, um, you know, intelligent, enlightened people are 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 meant to enjoy, like where, uh, um, uh. Yes, it's in black and white. Yes, it's a foreign language movie. Yes, but, it's a period piece. Yeah, but there, 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 there are lots of uh, bad versions of, of of those movies. Trust us, we're recommending a good movie. Um, <laughs> um, and I, I <laughs> no, it's very fashionable for us to do so. Yeah, but, but, um, but I mean, to be they, fair, yeah, I, I think I would put it on my list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to be. You have to be I in think, the mood. I think there's a lot of like when when it comes to the next question, there's probably some caveats. Yeah. Um, All right. Um, I'm not sure it will make my own top 250 because I'm going to hedge like I always do. It was in my top. I think it made my top 20 of the year last year. Actually, it came sort of. So I really, really liked it. I actually liked it more on second watch, uh, which is remarkable with with a film. Like you can tell that a film is going to age very well when you watch it a second time and you're like, relatively quickly. That's it. Relatively quickly afterwards, but also how many other movies were you watching at the same time as well? Um, (laughs) On the on different monitors, doing uh, the proper Netflix way, yeah, and tweeting and texting, Um, and also like making an omelet in the kitchen because that's how you watch and writing a book. Yeah, but you don't count Doctor Who as a movie. No, yeah, I I wasn't watching another movie at the same time, but it all sort of uh, yeah, you know, it all sort of poured in. But no, I mean, like, I, I really liked it and I would love to watch it again. And this is one of the things where I would be like, I can imagine myself being with somebody and saying, hey, have you seen Roma? We should watch Roma. It's like, not because I think you'll like Roma, but because I want to watch Roma. <laughs> but I also think you'll like watching Roma. 
So it'll be a net benefit for everybody. So I really, really liked it. Not sure it would make my top 250, but I can see it doing that, which is uh, probably as close to a firm yes as you'll get. How many it. times would you watch the films that are, are in your top 250? If you're going for a third on that one, how many well, times would you watch them? Oh, there, there is people who know me quite well like to point out that, like, I like Baby Driver a lot. It would not make my top 250. In the first two years of its release, I've watched it 12 times. It I was just on television. Away when it's on TV. That's it. <laughs> it's when you're flicking through the channels and you stop and it just sort of stays there. I know that makes it sound more passive than it really is because it's like, well, my thumb's stuck now. Um, but it's like, yeah, whenever Baby Driver is on, I seem to just leave it on because it's a very passive watch. The movie doesn't have to be good for us to <laughs> stop and start watching it. We've, we've, We've watched um, uh, Book of Henry. Book of Henry was one Gremlins of the... too. Neither yeah. of those we were forced to watch. No. For this, we did watch uh, Jurassic Park one time for a non uh, a podcast related reasons. Yeah, yeah, which well, is great. It was. It really. It's great. I feel watching... like we missed a lot of the kind of um, the podcast gold <laughs> <laughs> while watching Jurassic Park and Book of Henry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I guess Book of Henry is a nice pivot to this third question, which is. Would you recommend that people watch this movie? Anya, would you recommend that people watch uh, Roma, not Book of Henry? <laughs> yes, I would recommend they watch Roma. Um, but but then if you don't like black and white movies with subtitles, no, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, if, if, if you enjoy a well-paced, beautifully made, very human story, then I think you'll enjoy it, regardless of subtitles on black yeah. and white. Yeah. And Andrew? Yes. Um, I mean, I would I would recommend this to most people. They, I um, I think um, I think Anya makes some good points about like it's not to, it's not going to be to everybody's taste. Also, there I I I suppose I'd be careful recommending it to to um, to people. But yeah, yeah, but the the. the um, it's really difficult yeah, there, that there really was, requires a there were some very kind of traumatic um, uh, aspects in the movie and I'll try to kind of it's, it's difficult to to to, to, to tell people to, to, to warn people about it without revealing kind of what um, it is what, I, when yeah. I was writing the review I did I did say I did I yeah. felt I really felt like it was important to say that so. there is a yeah. trigger moment yeah. and if you want to know what that is spoiler alert for certain people just so, avoid spoiler alert okay we're bringing the spoilers <laughs> on right just, back just, <laughs> just, just, i think you've 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 mentioned what what, what yes it, i have what mentioned it, what it relates to so what it relates to if so, you yeah. are expecting or possibly planning a family maybe you or might if wanna... you've yes oh yes out of suffered there. certain yeah okay. um but yeah so i i would be wary of that as well um, in terms of recommending it, though, this is the thing. Because, I mean, Anya mentioned, like, if you don't like black and white films, you don't like foreign language films, subtitle films, maybe you should be wary of it. The interesting thing is, again... I mean, when we talk yeah. about beautiful pacing and all that kind yeah. of thing... Yeah, people are like, it's A boring. lot of people are like, I don't care. Like, I really don't care. It's beautifully paced, but none much happens, <laughs> you know? Like, it's ten months in a, you know, slice of life kind of thing. Z- well, zero is a pace. That's, <laughs> yeah. what, I, that's what I thought this movie was going to be. But there's more and of then, a plot to the plot sneaks up though, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that because I thought that initially, it's like, oh, this is just kind of uh, uh, like you say, probably like a few months of kind of slice of life, um, and then I got this creeping like uh, sense of dread. Yeah, 
just very subtly just kind of coming into the movie in various kind of uh, small ways making a you, slice of dialogue you, here yeah, yeah. an accident there a all reference there kind of, thing yeah. filter through yeah, yeah. All, socioeconomic political everything yeah I mean, it's fascinating race all sorts of things in there. these just little little touches of things that make you think not all is right beneath the surface Something and all men are bastards sorry but like <laughs> well, yeah, is, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna ask you in a moment what the movie is about for you yeah, yeah. Um, men are trash um but yeah in terms of recommendations though like despite all of that and this is the great thing again promise last time we'll mention netflix on the podcast but the great thing about this is there's no no opportunity <laughs> netflix are our title sponsor this was how andrew got funding for soft Apps, ladies and gentlemen um we are now listening to the netflix podcast but the great thing about netflix is there is no opportunity cost to this you can stick this on, give it 15 minutes, give it half an hour. And if you don't like it, you can turn it off. You haven't paid for a ticket. You're not stuck in a dark room where you have to make a big deal of leaving. No I would say give it no more parking. than 15 minutes. Yeah, I'd say give it half yes. an hour. But, um, yeah, because for me, I, 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 I was kind of... Um, and, and, and I think that's part of the kind of uh, 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 craft of it is, is that I was maybe... A, 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 a bit kind of like underwhelmed kind of like uh coming into it even though even though the the first shot a lot of people have spoken about um it's um kind of uh impact or, or the, yeah. the, the, the but the, the, the impact of that is a miniature version of what the film does not to get too yeah. specific in that it's a scene that makes you wait like it, it the credits play over something that's repetitive that's yeah. like not it doesn't initially appear very visually interesting and then the image literally develops on it which is, yes. is uh, like one of a piece of filmmaking but it gives you like that opening shot gives you a sense of the pace of the movie you're about to watch which i think is very very clever and very effective so yeah maybe watch the opening scene and if you're like well this is a very boring opening scene <laughs> then maybe you should consider turning it off but we're gonna jump into the spores and talk about it in a bit more depth right no i would entirely disagree with that <laughs> that's what i was thinking and and I think I was proven wrong because because they, they a, a lot kind of um, develops um, in uh, as yeah. All right, now we will jump into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. So Anya, what? <laughs> <laughs> Normally don't get that reaction from guests, but we do appreciate it. Um, there was a giant spotlight. I told I told Andrew it was a great idea to get the spotlight here. Um, so, you know, what is Roma? You can leave at any time. <laughs> <laughs> but why would you want to? Yeah, um, yeah. Would you just explain yeah, to us why you're... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I always feel really bad when I ask this question, even though we tell guests we're asking this question before we get there. Um, it always seems like it's like springing a trap. But Anya, what is, what is Roma about for you um it's a very personal piece by Quaron about i mean based on semi-autobiographical stuff of his growing up in a middle class suburb of mexico in 1970 and it is really his the the, the fictional family are um almost a backdrop to the the central character is the home help Cleo yeah Cleo and it is a film about all sorts of things and a lot of them aren't put but I mean it's essentially a slice of Cleo's life um it's about class it's about race 
but I suppose really the strongest thing I came out of was that it was about gender. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It is very much like, a, and again, this is to use the, the Twitter hashtag or Tumblr hashtag, because, you know, now this is Netflix podcast, we have to be trendy. It's the men are trash film. There's like, there's literally a moment where the, uh, the wife, um, comes up to to Cleo drunken yes. having crashed the car really? leans against the door and says all men are bastards pretty much she says, she we, says we, we, are are we are alone we are alone estamos solas always alone yeah and and that sort of encapsulates a large part of what the what the film is about because I mean it's it's a study of like Cleo but also the, the wife the, the sort of the head of the house who becomes the head of the household that she's working in who find themselves alone and isolated when they count on men Cleo gets pregnant uh, with Furman, um, who is, you know, initially seems like a slightly eccentric, but genuine, maybe pleasant guy. Who yeah, very... I was liking him a lot because <laughs> the scene that he's introduced, uh, Ramon is like, hey, um, if you're finished, come on. They're clearly not finished their tortas. It's like, yeah. finish, finish, your, finish your meal. They're walking away. Uh, Furman turns around. I thought he was going to, uh, uh, like force all of the food into I his mouth too, yeah. um, and it, like a man after my own heart but it, <laughs> like uh, he at least drinks some of the beverage there so I, we do need to talk about food waste in the movie <laughs> it turns out he's actually not such a good guy yeah I mean yeah. Andrew was all on board after it looked like he was taking was a hard like, step wait a second <laughs> There's something very suspicious about yeah. this guy. Um, but it is basically so they have a romance. Um, they meet on a double date at the, at the cinema. They end up hooking up. I think they had met before that. Yeah. yeah. They were the, talking the role about of the cinema. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cinema in this Netflix film, <laughs> <laughs> which is not at all ironic. Uh, famously, like they actually had to design, they had to come up with a clever way of shooting the cinema because they couldn't shoot. You can't shoot a projected film in black and white; it doesn't work. Okay. So they had to actually build a giant LCD screen. So they didn't actually project onto it. Oh. And they had to build a screen that would actually show it and then digitally add uh, the sort of the rays of light afterwards, which oh. is kind of remarkable. Again, which plays into that Netflix irony where yeah. it's like <laughs> the, cine- the importance of a cinema. You can't Netflix- film the cinema. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I think Alfonso Cuaron as well is very uh, comfortable with a lot of that. A lot of people look at this movie and they think, oh, it's amazing that they were able to get that shot. And they, they t- talk about, like, the planes flying overhead. Yeah. Of course, uh, Alfonso Cuaron is very... Uh, this doesn't seem like a movie that's going to have a lot of digital effects in it, but, yeah. of course, it does. Like mm. you were just saying with the... With the, the cinema... Even the cinema screen yeah. in the background. In those even C- the dog's heads, apparently. They were CGI. They were touched up with CGI. Ah. It apparently wasn't that easy. <laughs> <laughs> we killed a whole bunch no. of dogs for nothing. <laughs> Very committed to their art. No dogs were killed in the filming of Roma. (laughs) Just beforehand. Um, Because you have to have a solid six months of prep for the heads. Um, No, no. Created these dogs on computers, but they had uh, like actual feelings. (laughs) We couldn't. We felt really bad about it. Uh, But to get back to this whole thing about men that runs through it, because like, and again, this is the thing where Furman initially, he seems like he's not horrible. And then he seems eccentric. It's an he, he, yeah, I know. Like he becomes this figure of fun in the in the sequence after they slept together. I think I think Anya mentioned that this is one of her defining memories of the film because when they did the screening of it, I think you arrived late. I and did. The first yeah. image that you took in on the gigantic cinema screen <laughs> was, was Furman with the shower rail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was a close up. Well, it felt like a close up because it was a big screen. <laughs> 
But uh, I didn't think that that was the kind of film I was going to see. But then, but I did watch it from the beginning yeah. afterwards. I have seen it from the beginning. <laughs> it just so happened that on the big screen, the first thing that I saw was for me, Mickey. Um, but then it very quickly becomes clear, and it's it's incredibly heartbreaking because it's at once inevitable. The moment where she tell where Cleo tells him that she's pregnant, and in they're the watching cinema? Yeah, in the cinema again. <laughs> the importance of cinema here, where he he sort of insists on leaving because he's kind of like, can I get you an ice cream? I need to go to the bathroom. And she's like, the film is almost over. And by the way, because it's a long take, the film is actually almost over. And he kind of gets up and needs to go to the bathroom. And you have the slow, dawning realisation. As she does. Yeah, that Same he ain't coming yeah. back. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. The... and she's left with his jacket. Yeah. <laughs> I think there was a sense in, um, in that there, there was something very interesting about kind of um, I thought, uh, and maybe I'm kind of playing Darren's role and reading too much into it. To, uh, 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 sorry, never. No, <laughs> I lost into it. The, um, it it's Just never, the never right amount. <laughs> yeah, um, and I probably won't do it as well as Darren. But I, I, I felt like there, were, there, were, there was this kind of interplay between um, I thought between dogs and 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 men and 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 men and boys and boys becoming men. Um and and men staying boys, the the and women um, having to clean up after them. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Quite literally, repeatedly, and, incessantly. Absolutely, and you you see you see the boys like playing with the guns, yeah. Like um and even even after the um the 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 scene when for 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 Amin is re- uh, revealed to be uh, part of these kind of I a hawk. I think is that what they're called the the Folk. hawks. What? Falcons. Falcons, okay. Yeah. Um, and you still have the kids talking about these guns. Um, and it's 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 interesting because um, these these little in, innocent um, uh, boys, like uh, uh, impossibly adorable uh, Pepe, like uh, what does he say? No puedo. Estoy muerto. And, um, um, but they're all they're the role of Pepe in this podcast is played by Andrew Quinn. <laughs> um, but they're all going to uh, become men um, and stay boys in the sense of kind of not having uh, taken any of the responsibilities and very much kind of being being their own people and not tied down to things and leaving any kind of like baggage on the the, the women, women in the uh, in their lives like and, and it's like and, they need trappings of power yeah like do, dr that, antonio not, like and it's about power as opposed to responsibility they don't seem to want responsibility but no. they want power yeah. yeah and you see all the, these little boys in the way they kind of like uh misbehave in that and you see you see then uh uh Fermin being being this kind of um uh, like uh, midpoint um, be- 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 between like these uh, boys kind of um, uh, even like like with Ramon he's in this like really bad band <laughs> <laughs> it's like um, it reminds me of like uh, um, like um, 
like being in a band is kind of like you know having a podcast yeah <laughs> it's, it's a way of avoiding adult responsibility yeah myself yeah. and andrew are perfectly fascinating yeah. so you can but spend i should point out you're both wearing trousers <laughs> <laughs> thank you and, and um, not vests not string vests um, <laughs> and also not standing outside and uh, subjecting our neighbors to it as well but i mean like uh, one of the things that's interesting about the the portrayal of men in the movie is that like it is like it it would be very easy for it to be a caricature or a cliche or to become like reductive. I quite like that the film goes out of its way to like suggest that these men at least have like a passing ability to pretend to be men before revealed not to be. Like there's the great scene with Antonio when Cleo comes to the hospital and he initially presents himself as this very considerate, very compassionate, you know, when she's pregnant, when she's in labor. And he's like, well, this is, you know, we'll make sure you get the best care. You're going to be taken care of by Which the best so doctors. strange because like, and, and like, the, she's kind of l- looking at him like, well, why are you like, and I was kind of like, why are you here? Do you think this is kind of like everything is um hunky dory that you're suddenly like a good guy um, yeah. yeah but i know but then she said yeah. the doctor says you know no he's like i, I can't I, I come in with you but i can't yeah, she won't let me saying, oh no no you can come in if you want i know i'm busy <laughs> <laughs> which is which is great because it's that level of pretending to be a responsible adult and then running or pre- presenting an excuse as soon as you can in the most transparent manner which i, I really really liked like like people say, can you can you, can you do this thing? Let me check my diary. <laughs> Open it up and like loads of blank pages, kind of. Uh, yeah, but you you have to you make a make a show of reading it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm an adult. <laughs> I have a diary. <laughs> I can read. <laughs> but yeah, like uh, there's there's something very very effective in that and very very interesting in that and it kind of, I think you're right that it is a sort of a study of how these women have to navigate the world and it's not just it's notable for example that the, the they family... don't have a choice yeah you know yeah. they they are left picking things up i think um the men are the ones who have choice and they can decide yeah. what they want to do men have all this agency yeah, yeah. and, and it's i like, do, do you... think there's a big thing as i said between power and responsibility the women have very little power but they have an awful lot of responsibility yeah and the men choose not to take any responsibility for for the Antonio. men in the film don't presume some do but like I've read about it in books for a magazine article it suggested it was possible so for for Antonio it's like um, I love my family they're great and everything uh, but like I'd also like to just you know cavort around town. I know, but I even the thing of whenever that. he's cavorting, <laughs> yeah. like he's completely irresponsible and he pushes yeah. old people out of the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is that like big by the newsstand? I don't really care. Like, <laughs> it's never like, I suppose, in his head that like maybe I shouldn't do this. It's like, I'd like to. So I yeah. Think I will. yeah. And I'm taking the bookcases. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is so wonderful. They're trappings petty. of responsibility. Yeah. I can read. But, but no books. No which is one of those and again it's all the lovely little details in the film like that for example but it's it's like the his obsession with the car for example which is mirrored in that sequence of the kids playing with the little racetrack before that descends into the argument where they throw with the stone or the egg yeah. um but you have this sort of like this sense that yeah even antonio though he's a doctor he's very respected some people saying it was an egg what was it? Was it okay? Well, I thought it was a ball. I thought it was saying, a ball. Who's saying it, it was an like, egg? It Is like it just egg. you, Dad? It's just me. Okay. It's just me. This this debate <laughs> that takes place. I don't know. Um, 
People are saying online things between yeah. people who say it's an egg and people whose avatars are just an egg. Yeah, um, um, yeah. and people who aren't me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, okay, fine. But like, you have this juxtaposition of like Antonio's obsession with his car, um, and you also have like with the kids playing with it. I also quite like that Karan makes a point to have Antonio repeatedly stepping crack. She <laughs> um, was like a, a wonderfully passive aggressive sort of for a because figure. women haven't cleaned it up. That, that's a fair point. If they, if Cleo had done her job, there's no question. <laughs> there was never any question he was going to clean it up. Yeah, there, there, there's f- f- far too much uh, dog <laughs> in this movie. Um, to see the, where he drops over. Yeah, it's like no, 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 no. <laughs> in but, ultra high definition. <laughs> but, that in the cinema. Was in black gem. and white. Yeah, it's, it's like this. Is, is it an art house movie? <laughs> it's like imagine a imagine a wheel rolling over a pile of dog crap for all um, eternity. Yeah, it's like regarde <laughs> map. <laughs> it's like, um, is a French mind driving this car with a, with a little red balloon in black and white? Um, it's, that's our profound philosophical observation of the nature of human existence. Um, but yeah. The, there is a lot of dog crap. Interesting enough, because I've actually, I read up a bit about this, because they were saying that, like, one of the interesting things is that the movie's obviously very, very specifically rooted in the context of, uh, like, 70s Mexico. Yeah. And in particular, Mexico City. And, like, the level of detail, which works on a level for, that I certainly didn't get the first time I watched it. I'm fairly sure, even having read up, that there's lots of stuff I missed the second time. But things like the dogs as well, for example. There's, um, I was reading an article where it was observed that, like, the idea of... The- Show notes. Show notes, yeah. Well, they think the show notes, but there's an interest. There's like a wonderful article that's a New York Review of Books. Uh, did an excellent sort of discussion with somebody who had a similar experience of coming of age, like Karan did in Mexico, middle class family with a maid. And she was talking about how even she loved the little detail of the dogs in the movie because dogs at the time didn't exist as household pets in the same way that like Americans would be used to in Mexico City, where you would have the dogs, you keep them outside, and they would literally just crap everywhere. Like they weren't like. They weren't trained in the way you didn't walk them. They were just sort of yeah. there. Yeah. I was thinking that, that like, how how would, kind of, was, yeah, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering kind of like, was, was dog walking a thing? Like then yeah. probably not. Jogging wasn't really a thing either. <laughs> Jogging. Jogging. <laughs> it's very popular. <laughs> but like, they're saying that even like that level of detail, like, because obviously the dogs don't go in the house, but they don't seem to like leave the front door or leave that far outside the gate without somebody holding their collar either. But like, that's a level of detail that apparently a lot of people would have known. The dog um, does take like a, a an unhealthy un- amount. unhealthy amount like, it's, like they, either, you know. it's just washed kind of like the other day <laughs> and then the next day you do think like it does look like a place that they the where you could reasonably say to the maids come on now how long Slacking has it been me. since you've uh, oh it's only been eight hours oh oh okay well that's not so bad maybe we <laughs> yeah. shouldn't maybe you should feed the dog less yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just got a fantastic metabolism. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's how it stays so skinny without walking. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it is worth noting actually. We should talk about this because the maids um, in two thousand, like this, was apparently a huge part. Of, and there are a lot of articles online, we'll include some in the show notes, of people who would have grown up in Mexico around the same time as Quran who would have had the same experience of being sort of raised by the maids. But this is something that's still happening in twenty sixteen, for example. The National, Statistics, the National Statistics Agency in Mexico found that more, more than 2.3 million Mexicans worked as sort of domestic employees and 97.6 of them reported like not getting paid for that 
for example. I think the film actually came out at the time whenever the government brought out a law regulating their employment. Yeah. I mean, there was a sort of a, a juxtaposition between the two things. I don't think it was, an accident, it was accidental, but I mean, it's still very much a thing. It's not, it hasn't, by all accounts, it hasn't changed a huge amount in terms of class or uh, there's a very, very big divide in Mexico between rich and poor. You've actually been to Mexico, I think you mentioned actually, before we talked about Yeah, the show. I've been a few times and I mean, it's, it's 20 years since the last time I was there, but by all accounts, it hasn't changed an enormous amount. Um, and there is huge wealth, really huge wealth and huge poverty. And I actually did the bus trip from Mexico. Um, Cleo's from a place called Oaxaca. I don't know, the, the actress is, but I actually did the bus trip from Mexico City there. And it's about eight or ten hours. And it's extraordinary. I mean, it's it's... It's into a whole other world. It's from very high tech first world stuff into second world. You know, I mean, it's yeah. really, really interesting. The two and it, that 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 class divide is mostly a race divide. Yeah, I mean, like it because it, it, it is obviously the, the, and the the film even points that out in terms of the subtitles. Because I mean, the... still, I mean, even some of the things I I read some of the stuff from the Mexican press about it, and it was very interesting. That all of the names of the people who contributed to it were Spanish names. They weren't indigenous names. So Which would suggest they're from the city rather than from the, the regions. Yeah, and, and from a certain sort of class, you know, that, that there still is that divide. That journalists and historians and all that people don't tend to be, they don't have indigenous names. It is worth noting, actually, just in terms of like talking about like class and it still being an issue in Mexico. Um, the actor uh, Aparicio? Um, who played Cleo? Yalitza Parisian. She was. Uh, she appeared in December twenty eighteen on the cover of Vogue Mexico. She was the first woman of indigenous descent to have appeared on that. Um, there was some controversy. She appeared on. There was another magazine, and it actually generated letters of protest as well. Because again, people were not used to seeing a woman of an yeah, indigenous the huge background. Majority of the population is indigenous. Yeah, and they're they're sort of they're squeezed off screen. They're sort of they're kept out of view. Letter, letters of uh, complaints, complaints going, yeah. going into the editors of White Bread Times. Yeah, sorry. But I mean, but it is. It's, so, um, it is, it's very strange to think about. And I mean, like, particularly in the context of a movie that's set in... And remarkably timely. Yeah. It's set in 1970, but it's, I mean, you know, what are we witnessing now? Yeah, um, how far removed it is. I mean, because people are talking about, like, how maids, like, this sort of, like, maid class is still a thing. I mean, there's a really great, and I apologise, I'm going to mangle the name. I should probably ask Anya to pronounce the uh, the name there. I don't uh, know about this. Elma. Well, Alma Guillermo Prieto. Um, so Alma um, <laughs> noted that, for example, she interviewed a couple of domestic servants about their work for a project that she did for a book that she wrote. And she said that while it was hard to get like younger um, servants to talk because they were afraid that they'd be seen as stupid, they were afraid of being fired, they were, you know, afraid or wary of kind of speaking out, the older maids were much more comfortable speaking. Um, and what was interesting was that you know, they'd all talk about like the complaints about their working conditions. They'd all talk about how their employers had refused to pay their salaries sometimes, how they refused to have difficulty getting by. But like the biggest complaint that this woman, that Alma noted in all of her interviews consistently across talking to these maids was what about the children? They would ask. They fire us. We have to abandon them. 
And then you have to learn to love a new set of children. And you're always afraid that you're going to be fired all over again and lose them. One woman cried as she explained this to me. They never think about the fact that we love the children. No one talked about unless I asked. And even then, not that much. If they, if they were living nannies, most of them had their own children who were being raised at home mm. in faraway uh, Oaxa or okay. Hidalgo or Guero by grandmothers or aunts. And mm. it's, it's kind of, it's an interesting sort of contrast. I mean, um, in terms of the film itself, Koran, this isn't the first time that Koran has talked about his maid on screen. Uh, is it Lida, I think is her name? I think so, yeah. And he brought her and his mother to filming one day. And it was the scene where um, the mother has to tell the her children that daddy's staying in Quebec a bit longer than anticipated. And apparently he went back then to see how his mother and, the, and Lida were getting on. And Lida was in, in tears and, she, and he said, oh, what's wrong? And she said, oh, those poor children. Yeah. She was all worried about these fictional children mm. who had just found out that daddy was in Quebec. Yeah, well, that, that's the thing is that, yeah, he's, and it, she's seen it a couple of times. And every time she worries about the children, like there's this the scene at the end, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a great deal of depth later on. But it's a moment where the children are in peril. And he's talked about how every time she sees it, she's not worried about uh, Cleo, who can't yeah, swim, yeah. going into the water. She's like, what about the children? Um, yeah. And it's that's a remarkable sort of level of kind of uh, you know of engagement and caring there that even like, yeah but is it also kind of that we are less worthy? Well, is it internalized is it, sort of? I yeah, there is also a sense in which there's something that maybe that that it seems kind of part of the um, statement of the movie is that something that um, uh, women are uh, kind of either either capable of or just have foist upon them um whereas where whereas because like all of the concern um for 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 these children that uh, that that cleo has and that's uh, people like um antonio and uh Fermin, uh lack um is is it, it's 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 kind of um is it is it a response? Is it a responsibility that they that they just kind of have um, find themselves kind of pushed into, or that it comes naturally, or that it comes naturally? It, do, it doesn't. I think it doesn't movie, make that clear. I Though think, I, I was struck actually the second time that I watched watched it a bit more by the role of the granny. Yeah. Yes. The first time she she like I was very aware of her obviously, but this yeah. time I was I was more aware of of her role, and I was kind of struck whenever they went to buy the crib. Yeah. yeah and the, the where shop is in, in, yeah yeah and, and the grandmother steps in front she of her. steps she puts her hand in front of her you know she's an old lady but she is the one who's going to protect you know she regards yeah. a pregnant woman as something to be protected and Fermin has already disregarded enough done. damage and does more um in that scene yeah yeah and i i, I think well i i i think the 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 idea of the uh, of the movie is 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 that whether kind of uh, conditioned or not, those things kind of come naturally to 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 women and the kind of behaviors that you that 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 are exhibited by the uh, men in the movie are kind of um, uh, almost of a, of a of a species, you know. Well, I mean, they do. You know, you sometimes people argue that fatherhood is a choice. You know, motherhood is a an obligation well, an obligation fatherhood is a choice yeah i mean i've heard that argued before but i mean it seems to 
to sort of back that up, doesn't it? Yeah. That seems it, to be even, the thing. Even in, even in uh, kind of uh, mother-father relationships that are um, quite good and, and faithful, there, there, there still tends to, even, even today, be a, uh, a parenting gap. Yeah. So that, uh, like you see, you see this um, kind of contrast um, in more subtle ways, I, I, in, in, in less kind of um, um, in, in, in less uh, represented kind of less extreme, I suppose. Than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. But it's still there. But I, I, I think it's to, very hard to know what's nature, yeah. what's nurture. And yeah. It, it's and really social, hard to know. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sort of, because yeah. certain things are expected. But then at the same time, you reject certain things because they're expected or, you know, it's, it's yeah. really complicated. But yeah. I know I would I would say that in many families that I've heard, say, for instance, if your little children are sick. Very often it's the mother that's conflicted going, oh, I don't want to go to work. I want to stay at home and mind them where the father goes, ah, it's my grandma mother, you know, like that. There does seem to be a slight difference there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose like I yeah, cuz cuz I if I I think if I were going to have children, I'd want to uh play like a a, a, a large part in, the, in 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 the parenting and kind of um have kind of flexibility around work in order to kind of facilitate that. But at the same time, yes, I think I'm going to be less kind of um uh, uh protective of um of 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 children the, the the example you gave of of oh i i, I um, they'll be fine yeah 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 I, I feel like i'm very much of the mind um that except oh, when your teenage uh, daughter gets a boyfriend then they're not fine <laughs> i need to be there now <laughs> blockers is much better than it should be yeah um but yeah I, I, that's I a part of that i was like I thought it was good? funny. It, it, it gets a lot better towards yeah. the end. It does. Okay, it, yeah. it develops its idea in, a, in the best possible way that it can develop its idea. Um, but I will say that, like, that I suspect with you, though, they'll be fine. It's not so much a gendered thing as a personal thing. Right. I suspect How much I would that be. Is that's a fair like, point. But uh, I suspect I would be a lot less like, they'll be fine. Yeah. And I think that you suspect okay. that I'd be a lot less like, I'd be. I'd be a helicopter, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Have we taken him to the hospital? Have we got him? Has he seen a doctor? Yeah, you, yeah, you've, 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 you've spoken a lot about kind of like how it's your responsibility to ensure <laughs> that they have the best possible care. <laughs> but uh, I can't be in the surgery. I've, I've got an appointment elsewhere. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't go to a childbirth either if I hadn't had to. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like that's kind of expected that, I, that I'd be there <laughs> yeah. yeah no I wouldn't go and spectate no way um, but yeah just in terms of, of mentioning uh, Lebo is, is her name um, she's basically it's worth noting that like Koran brought her up before in uh, Itu Mama Tamban which, yeah. yeah, which is his 2001 you not, film. You haven't seen it? I haven't actually seen this. Um, really? Again, yeah, this is my big gap. That was a big um, kind of uh, breakthrough kind of... Uh, film uh, for him, yeah. yeah. It was, and it was the last film, was it the last one that he made in Mexico, I believe? 16 years ago or something like yeah. that. Yeah, but not just for Quran, but in terms of kind of international cinema, it was one of the ones... Yeah, that, that was. Of, it was uh, Gail Bernard Garcia yeah. and I believe Diego Luna was in That's there as well. Right, yeah. Garcia Bernal, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who um, who uh, had some sort of a role? I I, I think it was uh, perhaps part of the 
special thanks uh, maybe given at the end. I couldn't tell what credit he was being given be, 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 because I find credits um, often go too quickly for me to read anyway, even if they're in English. <laughs> um, but um, and Guillermo del Toro was 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 also in in that kind of big list of names. So I don't know whether they kind of have uh, financed it or well, I imagine Netflix have financed it. <laughs> oh, this but, is this um, in terms I, of like I, producing I and what kind of um, support he gave. What support or assistance they Wait, gave? Wait, they were credited in, in the, Roma. In, yeah. Oh, I didn't know. Um, just in terms of though, like to go back to Itu Mama Tamben, um, it's worth noting that like uh, Liboria Rodriguez, uh, who was Coron's, yeah, yeah. uh, who was Coron's uh, nanny actually plays the nanny to the characters in those films. She's seen, for example, carrying a tray up to Diego Luna, um, yeah. apparently, in one scene of the film. And it's also worth noting later in the film that Diego Luna's character, who's been apparently mostly oblivious, I haven't seen the film, I'm just reading secondhand here, but he's, he's been quite oblivious to how much she loves him and how much she cares for him and the attention that she pays to him, except at the end when he's driving and he notices a sign that points towards her town, which is a Tepal Meme, I believe. Um... And he knows it and he reflects that this is the place where the woman he once called Mama came from, which is kind of interesting because you get a scene even later in this film towards the end where like after they've come back from the beach trip where one of the children asks Theo, can we go and visit where you're from? Can we mm. go and visit your yeah. hometown and stuff like that? Yeah. And it, it's kind of, there's an interesting push and pull in the film with Theo's role in the family where the film... I, yeah, because I got a sense like there, there was this kind of... Um... This terrible thing that Cleo has been through, and then there is a kind of like a a um in order to kind of um take her away uh, from all of that, they 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 go away to the to, to the, the beach. seaside, and then there's another kind of like um real kind of like um experience, experience that perhaps brings them closer. But I feel like as soon as they're kind of like home and settled in, and what's into the roles? Thing, yeah, it's probably yeah, just kind of. Uh, well, she goes, as as she as goes right back to unpacking the bags, for yeah, example, yeah, for the yeah. kids and stuff like that. And like this is one of the interesting things, and it's one of the criticisms of the film by people like say Richard Brody at the New Yorker, and there's been some criticism of it from from other writers as well. I think the uh, the Latin American studies um, in the University of Chicago have been quite critical of this as well. The idea of how it grapples with this question of like privilege and romanticizing, and the balance between portraying Cleo as somebody who is loved by the family but also exploited by them. And the, I, now well, I think it, it does a great balanced. job. I think it does yeah. a very good job of that. I, th I don't think it goes one way or the other. I, th I, th I think both of those are I think it makes it clear the hierarchy, though. I mean, oh, it, it doesn't. Yeah. At, at no point, like it's it, like you're a member of the family up to a point. Yeah, sit and watch TV with his. Yeah, with the, the, the hands draped over. over. And then it's like go and make Antonio a cup yeah. of tea. Yeah, yeah. Go and make the doctor a cup of tea. That's a very strange kind of criticism because it seems to be it seems to be saying. You must not show any humanity <laughs> yeah. from 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 the uh, from, uh, from, from the, the middle class. Yeah. To, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the ultimate humanity really was that she kept her on when she was pregnant. Well, there's something really interesting in that. In that, like, because it points out that there's you a know, moment. I, it's not. Sorry, I don't mean it's the ultimate humanity. No, but no, I mean but, in the context. Yeah, because Cleo Cleo believes she's going to be fired. Like the scene plays yes. like Cleo's expecting to be like, fired. It's clearly a fireable offense. Yeah. And she's not married and, she, yeah. you know, and all of that stuff. Oh. But the family sort of protects her and brings her in. And there's even a discussion where she's talking with the other maid in the kitchen. And they're talking about how there was this incident, um, you know, the gorillas came 
and into the village where her family, where Cleo's family lived. And, she, and, and she's like, you should go and visit your mother. And Cleo's like, oh, I yeah, can't visit like her this. like this. Yeah. And there's a sense that like Cleo, if she weren't employed by this middle class family living in Mexico City with relatively liberal social values by the standards of the time, she would be an outcast. She would have been thrown out by her parents. She wouldn't have a home to go to. She would be really stuck. But because she is there, you know, they will go and they will buy a crib for her. They will keep her on. And like, this is this is the interesting thing because Karan has talked about this himself and he's not sure himself how he feels about these things because he, he understands that like, Lebo was not like well compensated for the work that she did and that, you know, she, you know, she gave a lot more than she got. And there's this interesting idea that like love is imbalanced, that Cleo will always love the family and the children more than they love her. Because I mean, there's always these things where like immediately when um, Dr. Antonio leaves, you know, the wife immediately goes, you should have cleaned up the dog crap to Cleo because that's, you know, just something she can punch. She can punch somebody downwards, you know? She can lash out at her. There's a moment where the kid is listening but outside the door. But that again is highlighting the trouble with power. Yeah. So that power leads to bad behaviour. So she has this power to to punch downwards yeah. because she is senior. Yeah, there's, there's one person in the world she can pile on and that yeah. happens to be Cleo. But that's about power and not about responsibility. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. At all points, it differentiates between the two, I think. And I, but I actually admire that the film doesn't go too far one way or the other. That it portrays the relationship. But as who, who says that the that the the carer loves more than the children? I don't. I I don't know. I would have argued that. I would have sort of made that point. I, I think that like I think that I don't I know if it's more that than the, the children. children's love for her is very clear. In the I film, think, I think that they they do love her, but they're also you know they're also prone to like yell at her and ignore her like the scene where she's but telling the kid rude. to get the away the sons are very rude yeah. to their mother they are I suppose they are um, but yeah, I mean and that's boys I suppose yeah poor Sophia um, if yeah. she eats that she'll get fat um, you see yeah. you see uh, uh, Sophie and uh, and Pepe there's this kind of like a, um, a innocence to them and even like when they're asked to, 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 to write the letters to their father they kind of work away dutifully at it while the the, the, the older siblings older are like, I want to go upstairs and write in my room. room. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a sense in which perhaps um, they um, there's something kind of perhaps they're kind of closer to um, to 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 Cleo and more kind of uh, uh, connected to her, where whereas maybe some of the older children have already kind of taken on some of that detachment. And kind of like, oh, you're only the maid. Yeah. Mm. Like they, and, uh, and I mean, it's clear that they do love her in the same way yeah. that, the, that, the, that the mother loves her. And even Antonio perhaps seems to care for her a little bit as but well. But it's part of but the dynamic. It's, and, and it's, it's a grown-up a, dynamic. Yeah, there is a dynamic there. Um, which, which, which is that uh, she, she's the help. Yeah. Um, and I think the older the, the, the kids get, uh, the more kind of conditioned they become by that. The more rigidly structured it is. <clears throat> I should mention, actually, just uh, watching this. It, Excuse uh, me. Like one of the things that did actually affect me a little bit was I, I mentioned the podcast before. I grew up in Ghana in West Africa, and while we were there, we did have a maid and we had a driver, Mary and Mustafa. And it's I was between the ages of four and eight, so I don't actually have that much of a memory of that experience. And I kind of I wonder now how that was because um, mm. I know that I know Mustafa adored my brother Kieran, for example. Like I, I I got on very well with both of them myself, 
but he absolutely adored Kieran. He'd teach him how to, like, he'd take Kieran out in the Range Rover when he was, you know, two or three and sort of, like, let him play with the wheel and pretend that they were driving and stuff like that. And it was kind of like, it was like a, almost like a surrogate parent in sort of that regard. And it is kind of interesting to, to reflect on that now as somebody who, you know, recognises that maybe they weren't perfectly compensated for the labour that they were doing and stuff like that. And I kind of, I can, as with that in mind, I have a certain amount of empathy for Peron, who's talked about himself. Like, he, he openly acknowledges he's not entirely sure how he feels about these things. His it, it's not yeah. a choice. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's not, what, what, the way you grow up is not a choice, whether you're well off or poor. You know, you're the child. You're just born into it. It's an accident. And, and, yeah. and, you know, I've heard people say, oh, he's just trying to compensate for, you know, being well Middle off. Class, gonna, so yeah. Why would he have to compensate for it? It that's, wasn't his choice. That's, that's a phenomenon, though. This kind of um, a, a, a guilt about being kind of like... Uh, Circumstances. Uh, well to do. Even, even things like... Um, Darren and I both went to Trinity... When people ask me what college I went to, I'm um, uh, for some reason kind of just um, there's a read the room moment before you I, reply. Yeah, I have this kind of um, uh, embarrassment. Um, really? Uh, yeah, about 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 saying it because because I I still kind of like think of it as this kind of um, elitist sort of yeah. And I mean, my, my dad would have gone, and again, I don't know how personal that's, not, probably, that's a small problem. Now. Yeah, no, no, like, like, again, um, God, it's so hard is, going to be educated like that. There is this strange kind of, um, like, I would have thought it was different kind for of your guilt. generation, young people. I suppose, yeah. Well, yeah. well, I mean, imagine I mean, it should. Maybe it was more understandable in mine. I mean, I was there in the 80s, and maybe yeah. that where, was more... Where you would have had to get a disposition and stuff from... Would you have nah, been that generation? Nah, not that bleeding old, Darren. Jesus. Well, my, my dad... Had, just to, for international <laughs> listeners to give a sense of context, Trinity College was the um, was a very British institution originally, and Protestant, which is a... That was until the 60s, I yes. think. When my dad studied there in the 60s, he had to get the local uh, bishop to write his dispensation. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, he doesn't hang his... Um, we, talked about this very briefly but he he doesn't hang his um degree um in the wall of his office even though he would kind of like to because he's i he's still a little uncomfortable with that in the same way that you know i think that myself and andrew sort of mentioned that you know you do occasionally feel a little bit sensitive about these things really yeah honest like put up that <laughs> yeah if maybe that, that's a christmas I, I, gift yeah, for next I never year never really never really okay thought of it that much it's interesting yeah, yeah. Yeah, this kind of internalized sort of uh, re- 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 reverse snobbery. It's the, 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 um... I think the key word there is internalized. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so much down to your own perception and all that. But like, I mean, really, you know, even, you know, especially about where what you're born into. Yeah. You can't hold it against someone, whatever class they're born into, whether that be extreme poverty or extreme wealth yeah. how they behave later yeah is up for debate maybe but this, this is about his childhood yeah it's about what he was born into the society that he knew and i mean i think it's three years of his memories condensed into 10 months or something yeah. like that and i mean like it's worth noting uh, it's worth noting by but the way. every single event took place i didn't understand if that was true about cleo's story oh in terms of the the birth and stuff is it yeah yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure I've about never that seen either. Any reference? To I that. suspect that's a highly personal story if it is true. Um, yeah. But the let, let's talk about this actually because like that is 
one of the most harrowing scenes that I've I've seen on screen this year. And I mean, like we, we joke on the podcast that I'm an emotional rock. I didn't cry at Coco. Um, I didn't cry at, you know, any other sort of like stuff like that. Uh, I didn't cry at Cinema Paradiso, The Secrets in Her Eyes. That almost got me like a rock. I, I had I difficulty watching. It did get you. I was shaken. I was. It did get me. Fine. It, it did get me. I didn't cry, but it shook me emotionally to my core. I don't think I cried either. Yeah, but, but I it, was it, really. I was I maybe yeah. too shocked to cry. Or, I mean, I, I find it incredibly, um, really moving, but shocking. I did find it shocking. It's not something you ever see on screen. On and, and screen in so much detail. And the way in which it's done as well. I mean, we're, we'll talk a little bit about Quran's technique later on, but the long, the long take. No? Oh yeah, okay. It's it's the the stillbirth of the baby. Um, so that Cleo's been pregnant for the entire film, well, for a large part of the film. She goes into labor during the Corpus Christi uh, massacre in nineteen seventy one, I believe. We'll probably talk a little bit about the context later on. Uh, she's rushed to hospital. Um, she's taken to the surgery. Uh, she's crowning. But she's not rushed to surgery. Oh, yes, like yes, she's, yes. It's delayed yeah. because of all these fighting men. Yeah. Yeah. And the chaos around it. And she, yeah, she does have to wait and they have to jockey for position. Well, she um, arrives there like, could you not have gotten here sooner? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah look the, out the window, love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, riot. Dis- despite the fact of being stuck in traffic and wandering through a gunfight and stuff like that. And then you get this horrific long take um, of the birth. And again, this is like Quran... Like, despite the fact this is a very intimate, very personal film, it is an exquisitely well-made film, just in terms of composition, in terms of structuring, in terms of mise-en-scene. Like, you have, in the foreground, you have Cleo, who gives birth, and the baby is taken round into the background the side, of the shot. Yeah. In, it's shot from yeah. the side. Shot so from it's the not, side, like, so we're so it. used to now seeing, you know, childbirth from a gyne point yeah. of view. Yeah, no, but this, this is, isn't. It's from the side. Yeah. And all of the gyny stuff takes place out of shot. Just off the frame. But then the baby, when it's born, comes back into frame in the background of the shot. Mm-hmm. And you have and this... She's in the foreground, yeah. the baby in the background. And, yeah. and you can see what's happening and you can hear what's happening. And again, this is the wonderful thing that the movie does. It's like a lot of people talk about seeing it in the cinema because of its visuals. Its sound design is also amazing as well. I remember watching the cinema and even the sounds of the conversations that are taking place around mm. Cleo are very clearly in the background as opposed to in the foreground. So you get the sense of like being talked about as if you're not and in the room. And they're not translated. They're yeah. not subtitled There's around yeah. the stuff. Some of the stuff after is... The baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah. After the And then you can see they're trying to resuscitate the baby and they can't. And all of this is happening while Cleo is right there in the room with it and it's just it's it dawns on us as it dawns on her yeah. that this baby isn't going to make it and it's just it's, and it is because yeah. of the delay because the baby who is not no you know not for nothing she's female she yeah. dies because of this sort of chaos the riot of men, yeah. that is caused by men yeah and it's just it's one of the most emotionally draining scenes that i've seen this year and then the movie does it again later on but it's just, it is harrowing. It, it shook me. It really, really shook me. I was shocked. Yeah. Um, and like, it, it's interesting because that maybe gets at the same thing that we were talking about earlier with her relationship with the kids. Because she talks later on about how she didn't want the baby. Um, yeah, and the guilt, guilt that she feels for that and sort of like how responsible she feels for that. But also the question of like, 
because she's been and this is the thing that was raised in that sort of quote that I made that I took earlier which is like she gave up so much of herself to the kids in the family caring for the kids in the family that does that mean that she never got her own is this a representation of like the family life that she never had because mm. she gave so much of herself um and it, it's just it's viscerally powerful but it's also and, and you say profound and it sounds pretentious but it is profound it's a poetic and lyrical and metaphorical and abstract and it it, it really got me it really really got yeah. me and there's even like a sense of um some of the the humanizing around uh around class or race kind of like within that because it, it's kind of it's something you see in lots of different scenes where people are um um, like when 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 the doctor um, uh, when 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 the doctor tells Margarita um, about the the pregnancy um, it's um, uh, Cleo is just kind of like standing there yeah. awkwardly like while she says she's 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 uh, four to f- three to four months pregnant um, and she's explaining the whole thing and it's but even like she it's, can't it's, answer the questions yeah, yeah. you know like yeah. when was your last period well, yeah, when you have the camera square on her face yeah, yeah. 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 and it's this very kind of matter of fact like kind of talking about cleo in like an open corridor with like a group of people while cleo's yeah. right there but not talking to her yeah i mean even in the scene with the stillbirth the bit one of the bits that really got me is the bit where the doctor very audibly asks <clears throat> what's what's her name um and it's like because and i mean like you know, understandably, you're in a high-pressure situation. You don't get the patient's name coming in if somebody comes into surgery. Sure. And it's completely understandable that a doctor would have to be like, remind me who I'm talking to. But it's the fact that he says it so loudly and the fact he's not discreet about it, that he's just like, what's her name? And here's the pro forma. And, you know, like they give her the ba- the nurses give her the baby afterwards to hold. Uh, but it's a very much a matter of fact for him. Like, it, she's not there. And, I mean, like, I can understand why for a doctor in a surgery that's, less of a concern than it is talking about her in a corridor but it contributes to the sense of her not being acknowledged by Mm. other people of not being considered of not being like considered as a person who is there in space i mean there are a number of shots in the film i'm thinking particularly of like she's in almost every scene of the film in fact i'm pretty sure she's in every scene of the film yeah but there's the shot of one of the shots where it looks like it's going it's going to be without her in it is after she goes out drinking um while they're visiting the uncle's house so she goes out drinking and they drop the thing on the floor and you get the shattered sort of glass, yeah, which is a which nice is visual very, metaphor, very foreboding. Yeah. And that, that, the, the kind of growing sense that you had up until that point, because you have this kind of thing about the like kind of uh, kids uh, playing with the kind of guns and the, the sense of like her relationship with, with, with Fermin and you see like kind of like marching bands and you have these kind of like small sort of like hints that of, something isn't uh, all right. Yeah, yeah, and then but that 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 scene with the uh, with with the cup being smashed is just so kind of like something like we've hit the point now where, where it's yeah where yeah. it's there and I mean and this it's so kind of explicit where it's kind of like this is um as toast to uh to your nineteen seventy one yeah and um, and then it ends up shattered on the ground as an expression of like what nineteen seventy one is going to be but I mean even the scene after that where the wife is. 
Like she's on the sort of veranda at the uncle's house and, and sort of the guy comes up and sleazily tries a move on her. You're not um, that hot anyway. Yeah, and he says as he wanders away. But the way the scene shot, it looks like that's the scene without Cleo. And I remember watching it and being like, is this the first scene we've seen yeah. without Cleo in it? And then it cuts and it's like, no, we've actually been watching from Cleo's point of view, but just didn't realise it. Mm. Like even even the way that Quran frames it makes the audience sort of complicit in ignoring Cleo and not seeing Cleo as a, as a person. Yeah. Which is remarkable. It's like, it is very affecting and very powerful. And you really feel that sense of isolation. And Quran is like, again, this is the thing where it's remarkable as both a deeply personal work and also a work of like incredible technical skill and attention to detail where you have things like, on this podcast, like it's a cliche, a critical cliche to say that environment is a reflection of psychology that the way a character feels is reflected in the atmosphere around them very literally. But in this movie, you have a lot of that. You have the scene where after Fermin disappears, she goes outside to sit on the steps to wait for him. Um, and you have the puppet dancing beside her on the strings. And he just drops dead at the moment. She seems to realize that he's definitely not going back and she needs to leave. And like you have in the background, a character announcing Mr. Bones is dead, um, which is again, it's, it's a highly sort of symbolic moment. You have a moment where after she discovers she's pregnant, hail, falls from the sky pelting down on the dogs and the kids um like this sort of freak occurrence you have the moment where she goes upstairs when she's you know talking to the doctor about being pregnant and there's a miniature earthquake and you have the like the debris landing on top of the incubator with the baby child inside it and is there a sense in 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 sorry to 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 interrupt do you think is it how what what do you think about the philosophy of this movie as as in do you do you think from the point of view of the movie, is it better to be um, alive than dead? Because <laughs> there are like several kind of like points in a movie where I was wondering, kind of like, how does it feel about that kind of in question? <laughs> like, because um, because there is the the, the 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 moment kind of out um, a a cleaning doing chores, and it made me think a lot about how the kind of um, a some of the kind of uh, uh, elimination of extreme poverty in the world and the, the kind of growth in the middle class has come around by things like washing machines, which 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 um, which remove that kind of uh, burden of 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 um, having to physically wash constantly. The clothes, yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, while she's doing uh, these sorts of things. Um, and hang, hanging up these clothes Pepe is kind of playing and lying down and he's like um, oh um, uh, no I'm dead. no puedo yeah. um, estoy muerto and she lies down with him and says I like being dead yeah, yeah. Um, which is Where, a segues yeah. into Coco like <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a beautiful it, it is a beautiful shot and again like it's one of those scenes that establishes that Cleo is as much a mother to these children as their actual mother because she's the one who's charged with like making Pepe feel better that's the moment where it becomes clear that like Pepe's like that she's not just home help she's a member of the family because she, she has the emotional superpowers. Burden. She's like the super athlete. Because oh, yeah. remember, whenever your man's there, Mr. Yes. Right. Professor Zoloft or whatever his name was. <laughs> Are we actually going to do this live on the live on the radio? Hold <laughs> on. Okay, Andrew's going to try and do this. He's closing his eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Closing his eyes. His, his arms are up. Oh, his his leg is his leg is forming the P shape. You have to put your hands above your head. Yeah. Okay, he's got his hands up. He's shimming. <laughs> no, they have no, to no, they have to touch. They the hands have to, to touch above your head. And. 
he has he's superpowers. done it. He's done it. He's got superpowers. He can't make a plane fly between them, but he has superpowers, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That was live podcasting. I was wondering how, yeah. I was wondering how that would go. It's like with all this podcasting equipment in front of me, it could with go my crazy. eyes closed, trying to balance that one leg. Um, I'm we're, not going to try. <laughs> yeah, I, I am unfortunately positioned in a way where I can't try. Um, just in terms of this, before we move on, because we'll, we will come back to talking about like Cleo and that sort of thing, because there's a lot to talk about. But because you mentioned El Incredible Professor Zovac, right? Zovac, no, Zoloft, okay. <laughs> um, do we know, we know that he actually existed? He was an actual person. He was an actual media personality. He's played by an actor, and Andrew will appreciate this. He's in 70s shape. <laughs> Is that it's what like, you're going to say? <laughs> yeah, we told us in the podcast about how men's physicality has yeah. evolved imagine, over time. Imagine if you're like casting for this movie, and it's like, we need you to get in, in quite good shape. Oh, I'll, uh, yeah, that's fine. I'll just get a trainer. No. We don't want parts. you to look yeah. like uh, Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're like, think Harrison Ford in Blade Runner, not Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049. But yeah. this guy actually existed. Um, he was played, and this is what I think Andrew will appreciate, by a wrestler who goes by the name of Latin Lover, whose mm. name stands out in the opening credits. I remember quite noting That's that. That's right, I saw that. Yeah. It's like, is that Furman? Is that Furman? I don't think it's Furman. Um, but uh, the character actually existed. And interestingly enough, as with a lot of the film, it's drawn from Quran's childhood. Um, it was the stage name of... Francesco Xavier Chapa del Bosque. Um, I got it in one, ladies and gentlemen. And um, what he would do is he's this sort of Mexican folk hero where he was on television for a very brief time from, I think, 1970, 1968 to about 1972. But he was, um, and he also starred in a couple of feature films as well, one of which was self-titled, uh, El Incredible Professor Zovec. Um, I apologize for that one as well. But he's um, he became this cult figure because Mexico only had one television station. And so he hosted this TV show on there. And it's like the TV show that you see in the film, except apparently it was a little kinkier. Because what he would do is he would have four beautiful women and they would wear... And again, these are not my, my phrases. These are uh, from some other directors and artists who worked uh, in Mexico at the time or who lived through that period in Mexico. They describe it as S&M gear, where they would wear the S&M masks with the, the letters on their faces that would spell out his name. So he'd have these beautiful books of women wearing masks that would spell out his name. And what he would say before, before he needed to do something that would require a great deal of physical strength, he would say to the audience, I need some vibrations. And then he would take the mask off one of the beautiful women and he would kiss them and therefore absorb their vibrations. And apparently, according to uh, a Mexican cartoonist who lived through this period, he said that like when you were in school in Mexico in the 70s, if there was a girl that you liked, what you would do is you would say, I need, I need some, some vibrations. vibrations. <laughs> um, and that would apparently work very well. But he was apparently um, a very, very eccentric sort of character. According to... No. Oh yeah! Oh, this is just the beginning. Like this is like, um, according to the Mexican news outlet Le Journal, uh, Le, Le Jornada, in nineteen ninety eight, um, he was born to a well to do family in the northern city of Torren. But his early years were filled with pain and aspiration. He was a sickly boy, unable to walk due to polio. But he was obsessed with mythical stories of strength, particularly those of Hercules and Samson. He apparently had an uncle who tried experimental cures on the lad, leading him to one day walking in front of his old families. The legend is that a relative exclaimed it was a miracle, and the boy responded, What miracle? 
My own will made this happen. Um, oh, don't worry. There's an interesting story at the other end of his life as well. He apparently, he died. He was known as the Mexican Houdini. Mm. He died during a botched stunt involving a helicopter where he was jumping out of a helicopter, dangling on a rope, and the helicopter veered dramatically in a way that it shouldn't have, leading to him hitting the ground, getting rushed to hospital, and dying due to multiple fractures. However, um, the real thing, the real interesting part of this is that apparently if you believe a lot of the press and talking to people who lived through it at the time, there was a huge conspiracy theory around it where it was believed that the Mexican government um, had conspired to assassinate uh, the incredible Professor Zobek because, and again, this comes back into Roma, we're circling back around to Roma, because Zobek had been involved in training the Falcons as depicted in the film, that he'd been responsible for some of the intense physical training of the people involved in the Corpus Christi massacre and the government wanted to cover that up. Now, the helicopter pilot says, not what happened. I just thought he was off the rope when I turned sharply. Um, And his family have come out and said that while they were thrilled, thrilled to see his legacy honoured and respected in Roma, a celebration of his role in Mexico's diverse and rich cultural history... They would also like to take the opportunity to stress that he was not involved in any CIA training of potential uh, sort of um, government assassins, just so we're clear on this point. But I kind of love that, like, that's the level of detail that goes into the background of Roma. This dude with his hands over his head and his leg pulled up with a blindfold over his face. Um, it's yeah. So that oh, yeah, you, you didn't check if my eyes are actually closed. <laughs> that's yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think we need an international adjudicator uh, for this one. But like, it's amazing that like that but level. Only him, Cleo, and you yeah. can do it. <laughs> but again, I actually I love I love that scene though because it captures the sense of like how amazing Cleo is and how understated it is and how like mund- how incredible the acts that are mundane are. Like, because Cleo has this incredible strength that I don't think she realizes she has when she does that, when later on, when she, despite the fact she's and never seen... And that's just before she confronts your man. Yeah, as well. Before, before she, she confronts Furman. Yeah. Uh, who can't do it, by the way. <laughs> like, like everybody yeah. else on the, on the pitch. He can't do it, but he has all this trapping of... Machismo. Um, um, and the know, stick. This is what he got, and don't even suggest that child is mine. Yeah. Um, and then just... Oh, it's such a... A terrible, hor- horrible. Um, and when I say terrible, I mean very well made, but also moments. like skin crawling. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's it like to watch that as a man? It's it's, it's pretty it's terrible. Uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah, it's it's. Um, but I mean, you know, it's 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 not it's not it's not like you can kind of watch something like that and feel like it's unfair. Yeah, because, that's, that's the reason. Uh, yeah. Because I think uh, everybody who has been in a family uh, knows some story, or anybody who's had friends, anybody like yeah. there's nobody whose life hasn't encountered or hasn't had somebody close to them encounter a Furman. Um, being entirely honest, like I suspect there are very few. Families. I didn't expect it from Furman, but um, <laughs> I mean, but... he seems so conscientious when it came to food waste. Yeah, that just threw him way off. But um, but I suppose to to. To see that on screen, it's kind of it's upsetting, but it feels kind of truthful. Yeah, and I think um, there is there is a sense in which kind of um, I suppose um, uh, uh, all men, I guess, have to kind of um, confront that. Confront that, that, yeah, yeah, and think about the the maybe more subtle ways in which the like um, 
uh, we ourselves are, are, are kind of um, uh, influenced by um, the uh, stereotypical expectations around. Of yeah, yeah. But well, I mean, it's like, very zeitgeisty, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I think that's very much now sort of what's going on. That, yeah. And I think that's very important. And it'd be something that I've never understood is why decent men who I believe to be in the huge majority are not louder about well I wouldn't do that that, that's not a real dude doesn't do that that's nasty we don't you know and I can't understand the stuff with the Gillette ad and all of that you know the the it 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 seems that most men really are very decent yeah why are you not louder well, this, this is the thing. Like, I mean, and it's it's a long overdue reckoning. You mentioned the Gillette ad. It feels like we are... Fi- and again, maybe this is just Darren being internally optimistic because my life isn't affected directly by this stuff. I'm never going to be abandoned with a crisis pregnancy. But maybe... And maybe, maybe I'm being overly optimistic, but it feels like we are finally, far too late to be absolutely clear, but finally having a conversation about that sort of thing and about the idea of what makes a man in a way that isn't a stereotypical yeah. uh, sort of John Wayne sort of like well he punches and he hits and he waves a stick and his dick dangles in the air as he throws that sort of shower rail around him but you have stuff and like it's like eight foot long it's a big screen <laughs> yeah it's a gigantic screen we're gonna take it all in here ladies and gentlemen um but it, it kind of it feels like we're having a long overdue discussion about what makes a good man and like that Gillette thing is part of it, but the, the really upsetting part is how much of a backlash there is against this. Like, because you, you notice things like in pop. Well, like I know. Here's Morgan. And, and that's, yeah, kind but the thing is. Like that, that's. James it, Woods. That's yeah. his <laughs> well, kind yeah. of. our answer for us. <laughs> yeah. That's his role. Like, the, 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 like, uh, I, I, I wonder, I wonder if he's as disingenuous as like a Jeremy Clarkson, who will say that, like, oh, I don't believe. Uh, this stuff really I just kind of you know have to play to the do role. something that'll annoy people and, the, and get kind of like people talking about it it's the Alex Jones thing where he was getting divorced from his wife and his wife claimed that you know obviously there's no he's way derailed. That, yeah. Yeah, that he's derailed and his, his response was li- it's just a performance well no his lawyers it's just a elaborate he's just an elaborate performance artist like like um, like Banksy or or Donald Trump, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but but I mean it does kind of get in, and it, I mean it's telling tell that Zovek is like this masculine figure because, and in some ways a figure of fun and ridicule, uh, because he is he's very much like a stagey machismo sort of thing. But it does feel like we are finally having that discussion. We should have had that discussion long ago, to be honest. But it keeps evolving, and it's yeah. changed so much so fast. Yeah, really, you know, when you think of how. The same it was for centuries and centuries and centuries. Yeah. yeah. And within a hundred years, so much has changed. Well, I mean, like, to, to pick an example, and this will probably be a contentious one, but things like, say, the Me Too moment, uh, but in terms of, like, opening the debate over Aziz and Saz, uh, and Zari, uh, where, like, obviously the, there is some issue with, like, whether what he did was a crime, but it was definitely not a nice thing to do. Yeah. And, like, having a discussion about how that sort of behavior is not appropriate is good and conducive, I think. Like, and that, the fact that we're having those discussions well, it now... it feels more like fine-tuning, in a way. Yeah. Do you know, as opposed to big, broad definitions of, of, of masculinity or femininity or whatever. Yeah. Because you can't define one without the other. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know. Um, I, but I think that there, we are talking about it. And I think sense. I think the film, like, I mean, the reason we're talking about it is because it's very much a feature of the film. Yeah. 
And no, I, I mean, the reason I was wondering, like, when you saw that depiction of masculinity that was for me, you know, being so horrible to her whenever she told them she was having a baby, like, does that feel right, wrong? Does it feel like a stereotype? Does it annoy you? Does it... It certainly do doesn't... men and women have different um, yeah, reactions like, to I, it? I find, my, like, um, maybe not as often as, as I should, because I suppose... Thing, thing about men and these sorts of issues is not having no skin in the game but having less skin in the game and finding that for us we're able to kind of raise these things sometimes without without them having the same without these issues having the same emotional impact or, mm. or upsetting us to the same extent so we're um, say like talking about something in 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 a pub like pulling somebody up on something they've said and there's a lot of kind of you know kind of eye rolling um and um and i guess the 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 response can often be kind of like oh um can't you take a joke yeah yeah kind of this holier than thou stuff and um we kind of continue to do it kind of i suppose some some uh, the the yeah there's, there 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 there's kind of parts to it about um it never really be it 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 can never be as these problems can never be as real or as serious to um men to 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 men who aren't primarily the victims i will say that men are uh, are in in part victims of their yeah. own um toxic masculinity yeah well. absolutely but it, but 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 not to the extent that that, yeah. that the rest of society is. Yeah. The um, I suppose you haven't really had to think through so many elements of it. And like, I mean, just even things like changing your name when you get married, those kind of you've never that was just accepted for granted. Yeah, that was just yeah. But you've it. never had to worry if oh, that's yeah. a good idea or a bad idea, or should you would you know? Yeah, like because we never have to consider like, it. Yeah. Yeah. So, why so, why would I change my name? I know I like my name. My name's fine. Yeah, no um, one expects you. Yeah, to, yeah, like, yeah. You don't you don't have to debate. Yeah. Yeah. It. It's not part of. It's not related to anything really yeah. but like kind of um and again like not having not having broader things not not having to worry about yeah not having to worry about pregnancy after sex that sort of stuff not having to worry about whether the partner with which we've just had sex is going to potentially be the father to a child or you know that sort of thing yeah whether we're going to be left literally holding the baby because there's no chance of that happening no matter what the yeah. outcome of what it's we're doing. It's good not having to worry about pregnancy after sex because we never have sex. <laughs> That's that also helps. Um, <laughs> a is for abstinence, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> nice segue, Andrew. The, um... Yeah, I'm not sure where this goes next. Yeah, I feel like that was a very revealing moment. Um, but yeah, just just to, to bring it back to, to talking about Roma and talking about the way that it was shot, because it's obviously it, it draws, it does feel very relevant in that way. It does feel like it's engaging with certain themes, in particular like political themes where there's that sense of unrest that runs through so much of the film, that sense of dread, the sense of like a middle class that is kind of where, like almost oblivious, but not. They're afraid of something, but they can't quite put their finger on exactly what but, it is. I mean, the middle class now has been eroded. Yeah. I mean, again, that's really zeitgeist. Yeah. I mean, the middle class is, is under unassailable assault, really, because it's shrinking. It's much more... Well, I think in, in, in the um, uh, uh, traditional um, developed kind of um world of the uh, kind of 1970s and 80s you've seen 
you've seen a, a, a huge kind of like growth in 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 this inequality but if you if the 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 story that doesn't always get told is that kind of on a global level you've you've seen kind of the 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 percentage of people in absolute poverty go from i think around 19 percent of of the world population to around nine like hundreds of millions of of people in 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 asia going going from like the 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 lowest kind of like uh, levels of depredation of kind of like one uh, dollar a day to 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 now they're 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 being um far more um uh uh, economic opportunities in those places and i suppose that the 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 next place you would like to see that happen is in like sub-saharan africa so the story of kind of like equality when we when when we think of it locally we 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 we, we think of it as as, as as a, a kind of like a shrinking middle class whereas that's um ballooned in 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 other parts, parts of the world yeah yeah but it, it does explain a lot about the politics at the moment, though. Is that like those those national politics of the shrinking middle class? Yeah, explain a lot of the anxieties and uncertainties that drive part part of it is to do with the trillions and trillions of um, uh, kind of euros or dollars or pounds of of wealth that are um, kept, um, I suppose, out of the hands of of uh, of uh, of the taxes. Yeah. So there, there, there are these like havens all over the world for, 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 for. for we did for, in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For, 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 um, for multinationals have certainly used kind of um, Ireland or certain certain places where people will will um, be tax resident or will move their kind of um, pension provision or, or all that sort of thing to so 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 that they'll um, they kind of play this kind of board game. Or the thing at the end is who who pays the least taxes wins. Yeah. It's like golf, but with taxes. Yeah. So like if they were able to 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 do something about those, because um, you can't really do anything unilaterally. Uh, b- b- yeah. Ab- about ab- uh, about your uh, your your tax system in a kind of a modern globalized world, because if if you decide that you want to kind of tax uh, somebody, tax they'll the just wealthy, move. Yeah. Yeah. Like like you've seen in France. Yeah, and, and 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 now some kind of people moving back to France, I suppose. Anyway, sorry, that was a bit of a tangent, but um, but it took its interesting. It, it is absolutely fascinating, and it's fascinating how relevant the film is, despite being very specific, because yeah. it's very much rooted in Caron's memory of a very specific chapter of Mexican history, uh, which obviously leads to the Corpus Christi massacre, which is portrayed in the film. Uh, there's a bit of context for that, where I think in 1968, as in Europe. There are a bunch of student protests in Mexico. There were like unrest. There was much more sort of, there was a harsh military sort of dictatorship regime brought in. Like, I mean, early in the story, one of the kids is talking about how like a kid, a kid was mocking. He throws something out. Yeah, he throws a water water balloon at a Jeep. uh, And then the soldier gets out and shoots him in the head and stuff like that. You have this fear that's running through. You have them going to the uncle's house where they're learning how to shoot guns and stuff like that. And joking about joining the revolutionaries. Yeah. And there's a, you know, I mean, in the background, there's that talk of the land grab and yeah. and all of that. And how resentful know. they all are of Don yeah, Jose. They the dog. Yeah, they possibly killed the dog. Yeah, as a as a payback because he ate a poison rat. Um, they poisoned the rat and fed it to the dog. I think is the implication. Isn't it? No, yeah. no, they, well, it's rather rather than the dog having eaten the poison rat. That's um, and the villagers just poisoned him. 
Well, they killed him. Just yeah, killed him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As revenge that, for that, that the end of Poison Rat was the story they tell oh, okay. rather than what may what have really actually happened. happened. Um, and, and there's a lot of that running through there. And I mean, we talked about like this sort of like the film sort of lyrical, metaphorical storytelling. You have things like the, the shattering of the cup, but you even have like the forest fire, like that great long take of the forest fire where famously they had to build a tree trunk that could fall over on fire, be raised back up and fall <laughs> yeah. over again because Quran wanted to do it in a long take. So it had to be strong enough to burn to fall and to be raised back up when they needed to reset it and do it again. But you have this idea, this metaphor of like what it's like where everything seems to be shrinking and eroding the sense of impending doom. You have obviously Furman who's and training. The middle class is out shooting. Yeah. yeah. They need yeah. to know how to defend themselves. Just in case. And you have like Furman who's training with a bunch of, uh, with the, the Falcons you point out. Initially he talks about how it's just exercise. It just focuses his mind. It Mark saved Clark. his life and yeah. he was a druggie and he was yeah. whatever. And, and it gave him, purpose, gave him purpose. Uh, which again is very zeitgeisty where you have sort of that aspect of people who are like, who, who felt lost in modern society and who found a philosophy that energizes them and gives them purpose. It just yeah. happens that philosophy you can imagine like, this guy kind of having a YouTube video. Yeah. You yeah, know, he's yeah. talking about how he's he's not masturbating anymore. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we talked about this on the, on the Star Wars podcast as well, where Kylo Ren is very much of the no-fap sort of uh, Reddit philosophy. Um, where, like, you do have this sort of MRA aspect of what he's doing. And you have that sense of dread, even before you know what it is that's happening. It's really important to have loads of testosterone all the time. And it's very healthy. It certainly won't lead to anything bad, as this movie suggests. But, like, and what's remarkable about it, though, is you do have this sense of mounting dread. And even, like, the bit where they're partying in the uncle's house feels like it's the, like the party at the end of the world, where you have, like... It's like a bad cult, yeah. you know, the bottle... <laughs> Yeah. The, the baby's bottle, the drink, the cigarette bottle. The guy in the, on the same, yeah. They're sitting on the same table. Yeah. You know, there's a bottle of milk, the yeah. bottle, the, the whiskey, the cigarette, <laughs> smoke coming out of the thing. And it's like, yeah. The, yeah. the guy the wandering guy around in costume. In, yeah. All, all, of the, all of the dead uh, animals. Yeah, yeah, the dead animal everywhere. heads just lying on the table. You're right, the warthog head just <laughs> lying on the table. <laughs> Some, um, uh, um, it's like a bad cult. Yeah, but it, it really captures setting taxidermy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like this warthog head is creepy enough. Can you fix that for me? But like, uh, what's amazing? Some, yeah, some domesticated dogs. Yeah. <laughs> what's amazing though is this, the way that, like, despite the fact that it captures this mood, this ominous atmosphere so well, the level of attention to detail. You know that apparently Caron's uncle was a communist, um, and he was involved in the. Corpus Christi, the massacre that's portrayed on film, on screen. But like the level of detail that Quran went to in making the movie is he has a photo of his uncle during the chaos, standing like, or crouching or panicking outside a furniture store where you can see people looking at the window of the furniture store oh. at the chaos. And like you can tell, so like, they've reversed the vision. They've reversed the shot. They reversed the sequence in that way, where you're now inside yeah, the yeah. furniture shop looking at. He famously shut down. Like this is the center of Mexico. This would be equivalent to shooting down O'Connell Street. Uh, shutting down O'Connell Street to do something like this in a small indie film, where they shut it down for two days uh, in order to film this sequence of the protesters sort of clashing. The attention to detail is remarkable. He, um, the family house. 
I believe it may be, they may have used the exterior. The interior had been remodeled all since. All those people trying to get to that, um, to that all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet <laughs> are trying to pick up a cup with Ireland written on it yeah. from Carol's Gifts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to go to that uh, pizza restaurant that's mysteriously been there all of our lives. But nobody's ever nobody actually been think in. of anyone who's actually went. Yeah. The, the O'Connell Street. One of the worst lives. <laughs> Main Street. In the world, <laughs> um, it has its own actually, atmosphere. It, it feels like a lot of main streets. Actually, there's there's a few that are a little bit like that. But yeah, yeah. anyway. But um, yeah, but Sorry. like even stuff like the the house was remodeled, or has apparently been remodeled since. Um, so they didn't use that. They actually built it, and they built they built a location that functioned like a studio because they could actually raise. They could have a shutter that they could close over the roof. So they could film during the night in light oh, wow. and stuff like that. So they could have, they had the, the lighting rigs outside the windows so they could all shine them in. They got all the furniture uh, from Koran's relatives. They tracked down, apparently 80% of the furniture in the film is the, original, yeah. Yeah, is the furniture that he remembers sort of from. It's very well, it looks new. Like. Black and white will cover a lot of that. Yeah. Um, he, was, he was saying how like one of the issues, all the, all the preparation work done for the film was done in black and white. The location scouting was done in black and white with black and white film and stuff like that. Uh, the pre-production was done in black and white film. The screen tests were done in black and white film. So it was built from the ground up in black and white rather than sort of like just shot in black and white. But he remembers like from his childhood, some of the tiles in the living room being yellow. And like he remembered like he, so it, in the in, on the set they were yellow and he shot them in black and white and they looked the wrong shade in black and white compared to what he imagined they would so he had to take them out and repair them and replace them with green tiles which looked a better shade in black and white and they found some 80 year old tiler who <laughs> yeah. knew how to tile with the techniques that were you well, yeah they did yeah they used some for the opening scene you know the, oh the bit where it splashes yeah. on the yeah because let's talk a little bit about this because we talked about like the the shooting of the film and the long takes and stuff like that the opening scene is absolutely amazing and it kind of sets the tone for what's to come it's a bit where she's cleaning on the the floor on the driveway yeah um, and the it's one just that will sp- be covered in yeah later on um but it's like and it takes a while the film like as the credits play over the film allows you to basically to see an image come slowly into focus apparently it was a digital composite i believe but it's the splashing of water down there so you get the reflection and then you see the two buildings and you see the plane flying between them. But it takes so long to develop. And it's really, really good at that sort of thing. It captures... And it's great because you don't realise what she's doing at the time. No. It's only later on after like she's been yelled at for not cleaning up the dog that you realise that's what she was doing. Yeah. Um, that it's like... And, and you get a sense that this is something that she's done every day. And one of the interesting things about Koran shooting this is he said that what he wanted to do was he wanted to create a film with a minimum amount of influences. Because a lot of his, he's talked a little bit about how like his work in Gravity was influenced by Kubrick and Spielberg and stuff like that. And how Marooned. Yeah, and Marooned, obviously, as this film gets out here. But like he wanted to make a film that was purely his own. But he was remarking that even then, like directors like Kubrick and directors like Spielberg were so strong an influence on him that he was looking at the takes and the shots and like the, the, the cinematographer, or, you know, well, he was his director of photography, but like the lighting Daniel guy. Daniel Caballero, was oh. it? Is that his name? He, he was the production designer, I think, was he? 
Oh, sorry. I thought he was the DP. He, no, no, he Karan was his own DP. Uh, he, didn't oh, yeah? plan, he didn't mm. plan to be, but apparently the only person... The per- guy that he normally works with couldn't get. Yeah. Ah. I mean, the only person who could really realise his vision. Um, but, uh, but like, he was saying that, like, he'd have, like, somebody coming over and saying, this shot is absolutely beautiful. Why do you want to do this again? It's like, it is beautiful, but it's not my shot. Because yeah. he, he'd have taken it from Kubrick or Spielberg. And it's remarkable that even when he watches the film, there are scenes in it where he can very clearly... He didn't realise he was doing it at the time, but when he's rewatching it, he's like, yes. I know exactly where I stole that shot from. Yeah, the, the stuff from Buñuel as well. And he gives yes. stuff from the Fogidado. And there's even the scene where the, the, the father is parking the car mm-hmm. in the driveway. That's taken from 2001 A Space Odyssey yeah. landing on the moon, where you have that level of attention to detail. By the way, I absolutely love the recurring joke with the, with the wife, where it's initially unclear whether she's just a bad driver and it becomes increasingly clear that she's, she's just really, really passive-aggressive. Yeah. I love the fact they get bit the galaxy... Bit by bit. Yeah, the ga- and then, then gets the galaxy fixed so she can destroy it again, which is absolutely brilliant. And again, ties into this recurring motif. And Andrew, you raised, you suggested this earlier when you asked, like, is it better to be dead or alive? And the film sort of has this thing that it does where it suggests that like characters like Cleo are stuck moving in circles. Because one of the striking things about the long takes in the film is with one big exception, which we'll probably get to in a second, a lot of Quran's long takes in this film are static or fixed in one place. They tend to, like, there's very little camera movement or the camera sits in one place and turns. Yeah, there's a lot of panning. There's a lot of panning. There's very little, say, zooming and very Mm. little sort of tracking. But, like, there's a lot of those great shots in the house where Cleo is moving around and the camera's following her. There's those really great scenes where she goes from downstairs to upstairs where you have the cut and the camera's in motion. Where she's running after the... um, uh, On the streets. Oh, the boys when they go into the cinema. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. From from the other side of the... Of the road. But generally, like a lot of the a lot of the long takes in this film are static. Like even the sequence in Corpus Christi where they come out of the furniture shop and they run downstairs, which is a massively ambitious shot where you have like people getting shot and smashing. And there's a really great scene where one of the guys with the bamboo hits the glass in the back window of the car. It doesn't break. Uh, he seems to take a second, like this wasn't meant to happen. Smash it again, and then it smashes. But like it's it's the camera doesn't really move so much as it pans. It, and there's the woman holding the, the, the her lover asking the, why are you the may are you the may yeah, or, yeah. Um, but yeah but like in keeping with that idea that Cleo stopped doing the same thing over and over again and that, all like, women are yeah that's it and the, destroying the, the car granny is another generation of women who's still picking up the pieces from yeah. when, what men have decided yeah and even destroying the galaxy again and again and yeah. again um, but like you have the camera sort of capturing that in the home where it seems to literally move in circles. It suggests that Cleo's movement is in circles. The camera stays in one place and she just moves, but she moves within a circle. Like she goes around the space. Now it's great set design. It's great, like show, it's a great shot, but it's very revealing because again, it reinforces this idea like the cleaning of the dog crap. It's the same thing over and over again. She's in a very tight, confined space. It's like water. And the planes flying overhead. Yeah. There's no unreachable. For yeah. you. That's it, exactly. Although you do get that closing shot, that ambiguous closing shot where she goes up to the roof. Um, and then you get to see the plane actually fly by looking at it rather than seeing it reflected. There's also that really nice shot. We talked about that moment where she's like, I like being dead. And the camera sort of pans up and you see all the other maids, which is like a really yeah, lovely yeah. touch because it kind of gets to the idea that like while this is Koran's story, it's not a unique story. And it's telling that like, well, in the show notes, we'll have lots of, lots of articles written by people like, I grew up in Mexico City in the 70s. I recognize a lot of this, particularly the life of my maid. 
Um, but you get that shot where it's like there are all the other maids doing exactly what Cleo was doing, which is hanging up the uh, washing and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The water kind of dripping off it. We, the, like it seems to always come back to that. Like at the start of the Water, movie. yeah. Yeah. And in, in the kind of out on on, on on the beach when they're they're all being um, being drowned kind of yeah. yeah. But that's one of the great tra- even when, or the when place her water when, when she goes to the place you know to find Fermin wherever yeah. and and the there's a campaign lorry going around saying and we're going to bring electricity and well actually they said we're going to bring water yeah but it's covered in puddles it's been raining. Yeah. So there's yeah. water all over the place. Like it's yeah. finding water isn't a problem. It's just the, giving it. And there's a human cannon in the background. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it, there, there's the hailstorm as well. And there's they're they're trying to put out the fire in the in the in, forest, in the as forest well. with yeah. like all of these buckets and buckets and water. Kind of. Yeah, um, but and I didn't know what it was trying to. I just thought it was maybe kind of a um, um, like a motif. It yeah, kind of, it kind yeah of rem- there are a lot of motifs, but I don't think that it's big. It, I don't think any of it's heavy on on metaphor. No, you know there seems to be a lot. There's water. There's dogs. There's planes. There I are felt other like things, the, but I, I don't, don't think the, it, there's. Dog, it, I don't. I think like I've seen him interviewed about me it. Of the the um, the kind of um, men in, in uh, like I I I felt like there was maybe like a true line between. Kind that's of, interesting because yeah. I, I I thought the dogs were a metaphor maybe for the, the sort of servants because you have that like weird sequence the really weird sequence where you have like where they take them in and the heads are mounted on the wall so it's like they're part of the family but they're the part of the family that you mount on the wall after they've died <laughs> so you have that divide of like the same thing that the, the that you have with Cleo and her family where it's like she's part of the family what to a point to Mary and Mustafa <laughs> yeah long story <laughs> after they were cleaning up Darren's <laughs> from the driveway um, but I mean like even then you have like the sequence where um, she goes out drinking you know with the, with the maid um, and they go to the little tavern you have the dogs wandering sort of free yeah. and wild which gives you a sense that maybe like maybe it's like the servants maybe they're allowed to have a little bit of a life outside of the domestic confines where they're kept locked up you know where Cleo's experience of the world is largely just following the family around mm. I kind of I, that's what I wondered if that's maybe what the dogs are doing and I mean the planes are very clearly like something aspirational up toward to reach towards i think a lot of it too was though the middle cl- was just plain middle class trappings do you know what i mean like yeah uh, international flight was a thing like i mean that was for you know people wealthy with money. people yeah. the dog apparently the they did the taxidermy of dog was a thing really and that was just really just it was just a flash thing it didn't really mean anything it was just <laughs> look what i can do <laughs> yeah. i don't know I love I love the idea that yeah this is the, this is the question when you come to like are we being like overly deterministic when it comes to Quran's work where it's just like no it doesn't mean anything it's like there's that, that great uh, again I wrote a book on Nolan um, and I remember one of the things was I had this big theory about what all the ice meant in like the Dark Knight Rises and how it was a metaphor for this idea of the thin veneer of civilization that keeps us from the dark abyss of what lies beneath and just this this interview he gave a couple of years later where he's like actually the ice just look cool um that that's no the, no 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 yeah. it's much deeper than that no 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 the ice just looked cool i've um, had a whole dissertation i know what you meant yeah. even if you don't yeah. with all of these little red lines going <laughs> yeah. in between everything yeah and yeah this is the ice yeah. this is the collapse of the financial oh, system okay. and here's what here's bain capital <laughs> it, it's all connected mitt yeah. romney people um <laughs> no it's just a- 
<laughs> but I kind of I do I like that aspect of it. I like I mean it is interesting to wonder how much of this is just Quran remembering how his childhood was. As you pointed out, those taxidermy heads are maybe yeah. just part of his childhood, but whether or not that's over overly determined. Yeah. So the thing with the human canon, I'd seen I'd seen someone there is a phrase in in, in Mexico, um, that the way to distract the masses is with um i think it's panny circ or it's it's bread and circus bread and ah, circuses okay, yeah. and that's like, and it's like a way in, like in them... Rome. Yeah, yeah 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 there is something similar in english isn't there what is it it is bread and circuses is it bread and, circuses? Bread and circuses well it's the same like zovek in his little unitard um yeah. and they his, have it in, his in, vibrations in the movie gladiator they talk about it as yeah well. How if you, as long as you entertain people, yeah. like you won't have to worry. And I mean, it is telling how much of the film is is spent like on that level of entertainment. Obviously, the cinema. Now, I mean, I a lot. Of... So watch someone being fired out. <laughs> I'd love to see that. Yeah. So like, I don't really. Care. The homeless crisis is important, but I mean, this is a guy getting shot out of a gun, ladies and gentlemen. Um, and but there is so much of like how much time is spent at the cinema, for example, and a lot of people being like, and this is the thing about like the argument that this is Caron's movie through his eyes. Like the idea of seeing marooned as a like an obvious like acknowledgement of the influence it had on gravity, but it's like despite that, it's very hard to tell which one of the three kids, which one of the three boys, Quran is. It's not and really. They, his I don't story think at they all. had yeah. a sister. Did yeah, they? I don't believe so either. The, the you know even with the daughters, even with the wealthy daughters, you know it it is set up, set apart. You know that you mentioned it earlier that oh she, you know everyone else can have strawberries or ice cream, whatever. No, no, not for Sophie. Sophie. She'll get fat. Yeah, you know, I mean, and it's repeated later on by the brother as well. Yeah, and that's you know, you you have a very limited function. Yeah, so it all just comes back to to the whole sort of gender thing and class and race. I don't know that we really can appreciate that element of it that much. Yeah, it is, it is how intrinsic it is to it. You know, I mean, I think it's very important in a Mexican context. It is worth noting, like, for example, it's been argued that there are very few uh, Mexican films to focus on, like, working class indigenous people. Um, again, Alma, um, who, who I quoted from the New York Review of, New York Review of Books, uh, pointed out that, like, the only other example she can think of of a Mexican film focusing on the point of view of the maid or an indigenous maid uh, are the farcical and offensive comedies featuring La India Maria, um, which seems to be like a Tyler Perry type figure. Um, so it is like, again, there's a sense that this is a, it's remarkable to see a, a movie like this in this context. And it's strange that it took so long, mm. much like, again, we talked about the cover of, uh, Mexico's Vogue, Vogue. Yeah. how long it took to take in, to put an indigenous woman on the cover of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so, uh, with that in mind, then we're going to finish up here, but, uh, is there anything that you would like to recommend for listeners? Anything that you sort of been listening to watching reading that you like to point them towards maybe a netflix thing maybe a foreign film maybe just another favorite at the oscar race uh no i mean at the moment everyone's talking about that fire doc on which one i'm about to say which fire doctor because it's on the hulu that, as well yeah well there's there's one on youtube and there's one yeah. on there's a newer one on netflix i don't know all right I haven't seen it. Apparently it's insane. I've heard that it's completely off the wall, as one might expect for yes. a fire documentary. Yeah. Um, Andrew? Um, off off the wall, I guess. Uh, sorry, sorry to bother you. Um, oh, you saw it? Yes, I did. I did. Um, with um, uh, Starring the Keith Stanfield. But uh, uh, crazy. And um, it's produced by The Coup as well. Did, um, which... Um, 
which was 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 amazing to me. Or, or the, the kind of like um, that big um, create creative yeah, kind of, of um, talent. Sort yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Um, the the coop is uh, Boots Riley's group. Isn't yes, it, if I remember correctly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who who wrote and directed it? Yeah, they, 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 they sorry, like a lot of the music is is um, is um, produced by them as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, I, and, I, and and that's um, kind of where I would have known Boots Riley from 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 previous. So so that that, that was that was a real um, bonkers kind of um, treat. Um, I can imagine that movie. I just yeah, like I, I thought it was Bert Hoven. Was I right on that read? Was I right that it was uh, sort of like that eighties satire of capitalism that you sort of feel that modern movies don't do anymore? Did I get that read right? Well, I, 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 I think, I think it, it was, it, it was very much its own thing. But, okay. it, but, it, but, yeah, I, no, I, 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 I see, I see, yeah, what, what, what you mean by that? It's very difficult to say. It's a this thing kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, because it's very much its own <laughs> yeah. uh, kettle thing of fish. Entirely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd also second that recommendation. In terms of stuff on Netflix, I've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, which is on Netflix. And it's just a feel-good, like wrap yourself up in a warm blanket, sort of professional people in a professional environment being professional. Like, I mean, there's an interesting argument about like this, you know, Star Trek fans complaining about recent iterations of Star Trek for not presenting like a utopian ideal. And it's kind of interesting to wonder that, like, the logical successor of, say, Star Trek The Next Generation is probably, like, the workplace comedies of Mike Shore, which are just about highly professional people in a highly professional environment being very good at their jobs and enjoying one so. another. That's it, yeah, enjoying one another's company. So I recommend that. But if people are looking for a bit more Anya, a bit more Andrew in their lives, where can they find you guys? Uh, well, just on Twitter. <laughs> Doing and nothing. Lurking. I mostly just lurk, <laughs> so there's not much point. <laughs> Yeah, tell my likes. Check out something. her likes. Yeah, check out her likes. Um, that's where it's at. Andrew, um, he lurks more than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm. Um, I like if you you don't you don't have to follow me at all. Like if you're if you're following uh, the two fifty on on Twitter, it would be redundant to to follow me as well. It's mostly likes and retweets <laughs> on the two fifty Twitter feed. Yeah, the, um, if you follow the any, anything that mentions my name in it, I will like and retweet. It's a good idea for you listeners yeah. to see <laughs> what you can get Andrew to retweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want a signal boost, yeah. signal boost. Yeah. Just include Aquanuqua in your tweets, and you get a free retweet off that. Yeah. Um, the two fifty account is also at the two fifty. Follow me at Darren underscore Mooney. Uh, we're available on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, wherever good i good podcasts are not sold. We'll be back next week where we'll be talking about Green Book. Hopefully we've got a special guest lined up. We don't want to announce who it is in case it doesn't work out, but we're very, very excited about that. Yeah. Take it easy, guys. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye.